taking a closer look today at the outrageous corruption and technology theft that has helped elevate China as a global threat to freedom. We must expose the political betrayal of many U.S. politicians in selling out America to the communist regime in China. Lies are many, the truth is one. So, back here at the Looking Glass Forum, we're doing episode 32, and we're really compelled to take a look at what's happening with the penetration of the United States government at all levels with the, the agent provocateurs and the methods of collection that are utilized by the Communist Chinese Party. So, the CCP has been working for a long time to get the United States into this precarious position here. And it takes espionage to a whole new level because we're talking about having to protect our cyber infrastructure, our electrical grid, and we have to point out that the headlines are exploding with the espionage efforts of the exploits of the communist Chinese, the CCP, as they have been able to ultimately take advantage of many U.S. politicians mainly Democrats uh, on the Democratic side. We've been seeing this happen for quite a long time now. We've been seeing a continuous uh, slow drip of the exposure of the Democrat Party and its efforts, especially in Washington, D.C., just the whole game itself and the ties between especially uh, Joe Biden, who I think is looking pretty like he's in pretty bad shape. I know everyone's saying he's being lauded as the president-elect and the media uh, cyber tyranny of Silicon Valley has kind of determined that Joe Biden is going to be cinched into this position. But from what I'm looking at, at the, the gears of the system moving here, it appears that there is some kind of upheaval here coming in the works. And um, so not to sound too much like a Q conspiracy nutcase, but it doesn't look like this is a typical like presidential loss where um, the, where Trump seems, you know, is just in denial. I, I just don't see that. It looks like his people and his his men are, are, are about to roll the system here on January 6th. But be that as it may, the CCP has been working overtime to take advantage of a lot of the precarious um, and open uh, gaps in our armor, if you will, of our system here in America. And it has a lot to do with the student populace on university campuses, which is absolutely enormous. I mean, they have several standing army. I mean, what, 700,000? I'll have to go back through as we look at, look at this data and get a, a better look at the, the details of it. But ultimately, they're, um, we're training their next generation of tech and cyber uh, and practically uh, military agents because ultimately their their military and their private industry, their private society and civil society and private business are all one and the same. So there's having their CCP agents and, and assets being sent here to be trained at the highest level in our in our uh, in the halls of our higher learning here in academia, and ultimately this feeds into the anti-Americanism that's being fueled on the camp college campuses. We have all these pro-Marxist radicals running around talking about you know racial issues and inflaming you know and polarizing people's the differences between people based on you know a litany of of division politics that ultimately divides us uh, and fillets us and and 
it, it minces us into individual political units where we have no group authority or group power. And you can see that there's a wave of nationalism rolling over America, this Trumpism that's really hitting America. And and it's pretty extraordinary when you look at the, the amount of counties that were blue that ultimately Joe Biden is saying elected him into office. And it's like minuscule. It's like the smallest amount of counties ever that... Um, so some of these counties had massive ballooning voter additions to the voter, the ballot rolls just suddenly overnight. And it's really extraordinary watching all these different dynamics play out. And it's really a very historical point in our American culture and in our American history here. If we cannot seem to work out the details of what democracy actually is on like on a level playing field, then it'll become just like a theftocracy and it'll be a constant enshrining of criminality as the basic fiat for getting things done, which it has been. And when we know behind closed doors, how things really operate and the boiler room deals, and you can see that China is all over the place is really just completely crept up on us and is stealing everything that's not nailed down, every kind of intellectual property writing and turning into some kind of weapon against us. Um, They're drone flamethrowers. You know, I could see these videos online of like, CCP flamethrowers that are just mounted on drones that can just fly around and just burn everything, burn, you know, burn people alive. And then you have their Uyghur populace and you have this extraordinary shame of people like these NBA stars like uh, LeBron James and his cohorts who are having their, their shoes made by slave labor in China. And it's, it's become just melodrama of horrific proportions so that, you know, these BLM guys who are complaining that there's a, a substantial systematic racism and that the police are illegitimate and we should burn down the cities to protest BLM and their Marxist tactics. And these all their supporters have to wear LeBron James shoes who were made by communists in China who have a slave labor force to turn, you know, $3 pair of shoes worth the material into $150, $180, $200 shoes that kids have to shoot each other in Chicago over to steal from their invidious nature of the of the, the shoe market and the hip-hop culture is such that you can get murdered over your shoes made by slave labor in China, the Uyghurs, you know, so, and ultimately the Uyghurs are Muslims who are being, having their, their religion stripped away from them in the most inhumane and brutal way, cultural genocide of the Uyghurs who are no longer allowed to be Muslims who are making the shoes for LeBron James to be a billionaire and fund his um, continuous accusations against white people. So this is the kind of insanity. I think that maybe, maybe they were having chemtrails. I think maybe they sprayed our country with chemtrails and we've all lost our, our minds. We've just gone insane. They just, they had the right concoction. They've been spraying us for years and now we've all just gone and our, our, our gourds have been popped and we no longer can think straight. I mean, this is the kind of level of insanity and hypocrisy and corruption that we're facing today in America. And it's a difficult position for people. We have these truck bombs going off. And then I looked down there and sure enough, there's a guy and they're showing the video online that shows the truck bomb wasn't exploded. You know, it was, it was, there was, a, there was some other explosion across the street that exploded and blew up. Yeah, the RV there in Nashville. So now that there's a prevailing conspiracy theory about who actually set off these bombs and knocked down the AT&T, the links. So you can see that the body politic, we're, we're spiraling. And 
you know, you can't, you can be a bootlicker and just listen to the CNN tell you that Joe Biden is president elect. And on the other side, you could, you could see that the people within these, uh, within the state legislatures, it's, it's creating a huge, a massive backlash. It seems to me that their, that their voter fraud, that their, their theft of the election was so grossly overblown and obvious now that the evidence is going to be, it seems to me that they, they were well aware that, that Trump passed the 2018 executive order that protecting um, elections is a national security threat. Right. So they were, so these were the most watched and the most like NSA data gathering, you know, FBI squads watching the election process that had ever been. So I think that we're going to see some astonishing results here play out. And I think that if, if it happens the way it looks like it's going to happen, I think that, that despite all the efforts of the media giants and the Twitter and these tech giants, and uh, and everyone, uh, Jake Tapper, what a fool! And you know, it, for the entire apparatus, the, what, the, what are you going to call it? The deep state apparatus for it to protect itself and to try to convince the world that that um, there's nothing to see here and that Biden was elected is just ultimately going to fail as a, as a process. And ultimately, the you're going to see the inner working of the government as the adults kind of take control and that Trump will will be reelected. I think that. I know it's some kind of heresy to say that it's heretical at this point to say that Trump is going to be reelected and be inaugurated. But I think that that's what's going to happen. Can you imagine the astonishment that will uh, unfold across like widespread panic across the, uh, the the populace here in America? So I don't foresee it's possible. Like everyone's, you know, my, you know I have family members who are, who are just think that Trump will step down. And he'll just go into become a media tycoon or, and he'll just you know, walk it off. But I don't think that, I mean, and, and if he does, I think that, that no one on the Republican side will be astonished to see that. But if he up the, the pulls an upset, which is the typical Trump style, and basically tells Biden, you know, you're not going to be president. And can you imagine the Durham report coming out and, and Durham indictments coming out at the same time that, Ghislaine Maxwell begins to go to court at the same time that they show that there was massive voter fraud. It's, it's really this kind of weird shadow, this dark cloud will pass over the heads of all these individuals as they are able to tie together Jeffrey Epstein to voter fraud, to fake Russia, to, to the whole massive mess is going to, you know, go in on their heads. So I don't see why Trump would not do that. You know what I mean? So as we move forward, I have a very interesting article here for us to take a look at. We might also point out that the apparently the Vietnamese and the Indians have warships moving to the South China Sea. And I think that there's ongoing disputes there and it's getting really tense. There's an article here of uh, December 24th, 2020, China testing new fleet warships amid ongoing rising tensions disputed South China Sea. So they're they're having new warships moving on out there. But I want to focus in here on here on the 29th, which is yesterday from, from this recording. Trump in his administration fortifies ban on investment of Chinese military companies. So let's just take a look here. The administration is prohibiting all exchange trade funds and index funds from financing Chinese military companies. Now, that is an interesting way to put it. Chinese military companies would be any company in China. So there's really not a single company in China that isn't promoting the interests of the Chinese communists. The Trump administration has beefed up an executive order banning U.S. investments in Chinese military companies, according to a notice posted by the Department of Treasury late on Monday evening. 
The November executive order prohibits exchanged trade funds and index funds from financing Chinese military companies and or any related subsidiary companies. In a statement yesterday about the executive order, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the prohibition ensures U.S. capital does not contribute to the development and modernization of People's Republic of China, PRC, military intelligence, and according to Treasury's post, the department plans to publicly list subsidiaries that are 50% or more owned by one or more communist Chinese military companies or determined to be controlled by one or more Chinese uh, communist Chinese military companies. The statement also authorizes the state the Secretary of Defense to add companies to a list for cause. The Secretary of Defense, in consultation with the Secretary, the Secretary of the Treasury, may determine that an entity, including as a subsidiary, is a communist Chinese military company operating directly or indirectly in the United States or in any of its territories or possessions, and therefore list it as such, reads the Treasury notice. Pompeo clarifies that the executive order applies to all transactions by U.S. persons, including individuals, institutional investors, pension funds, university endowments, banks, bond issuers, venture capital firms, private equity firms, index firms, and other U.S. entities, including those operating overseas. Investors complete divestment from communist Chinese military companies as expected November 11, 2021. And then the article really concludes. So the point is, is that if you're looking at this correctly, we're really looking at the fact that we're really at war with China and that there are many articles we read right now and just pull up that talk about how involved the Chinese Communist Party was with its cyber forces and the election. So there's a lot to really come out right now. I think that the resistance that the, the Chinese Communist regime is going to have to being pushed out, um, it's really been funding the deep state actors, it's been funding the radicalism on college campuses, it's been funding the opinion of itself in Hollywood and other mainstream venues where it's been carefully sculpting its its image in, in public, you know, as it's being laid out in, in popular movies and in, in commercials and it, it's carefully uh, making sure that the world is deceived by its its practice of looking like it's, it's normalizing and appearing to be a normal superpower but really it, it's a monstrous dictatorship, a, a tyrannical power that's that's destroying and, and, and destroying whole populations and whole cultures and civilizations within China, holding people in slavery and economic bondage, and attempting to do the same to extend that bondage and that economic slavery across the globe, and export its brand of totalitarian control over all things uh, related to itself, so that it becomes an all-consuming, ubiquitous force. That's what communism is, and, and the Chinese communists have been operating under the radar and appealing to um, the, the baser nature of our of our politics, of our democratic system, so that this infighting is being exacerbated by the different... And, and look at what's going on with, with Eric Swalwell. He, what an what a absolute, disgraceful, monstrous train wreck this has become with this guy. I mean, he, he wants to try to stay on the intelligence. I mean, it, 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 they're tied into our to the intelligence agencies. Um, they've they've gone to great lengths to subvert uh, the, the different political apparatuses. Uh, it's obvious that the Clintons have been long subverted by the, the communist regime. Uh, there's senators who had longtime spies operating as their drivers. I mean, the, the communist regime is really 
braid up our pant leg, so to speak. It's really become a major issue. I think that it's obvious now that we're going to be in a state of conflict with them. And ultimately, we have to recognize that the dilemma that we're facing within our presidential politics right now, within this this fight for the leftists, we're really just socialists, we're really just communists, as they kind of work together with the Chinese communists to subvert our, our country and to bring down our national sovereignty. And ultimately, there is no individual sovereignty or protection of law. It just becomes a chaotic mess for, for China to do a land invasion. And we, we've done episodes about that before. No one wants to imagine such a horrific idea. No one wants to picture it in their mind of Chinese tanks rolling over California and rolling. You know, we have to fight for the freedom of our country or right? it won't remain free. There's no reason for the Chinese or the, the Russians or anyone else to just allow us to exist in a power vacuum where we're a weak, corrupt paper tiger. And so ultimately, that's what we're trying to defend against. We're trying to ensure that a country can ma- remain I- I- intact. And we're not talking about left or right politics between Democrats and Republicans. We're talking about the, the corruption and the, and the betrayal on a, on a level of, of treachery to sell out our country to our enemies. And that cannot be forgiven and it cannot be tolerated within politics. So we have to support our the patriots within our government and their efforts to make sure that we can remain a free country and that fight against enemies, foreign and domestic. So we really need to focus on the fact that there are domestic enemies, there are traitors like this Swalwell figure and others who are going to ultimately come out and be exposed as being taking Chinese money, having sex with Chinese assets, being manipulated by Chinese politics, and being subverted by the Communist Chinese Party. As we dig into this episode, we have to really face a, a difficult issue. The Chinese Communist Party is not a protector of religious perspective. They don't allow religion to be protected. Christian churches are demolished. Uh, Christian pastors are imprisoned. Muslims are imprisoned. People who want to hold to their the independence of their conscience. It's about freedom of conscience at this point, you know, and what they're having is really ultimately an inquisition within China. That if you will not become a, a, a totally sold out zombie of the state, an empty pawn for the, the state to move around its chessboard and use it as it will, just, and you're, if you don't accept servitude with a lifetime uh, of work in, in the in the rice paddies, but you want to come to the city, you're, you're not allowed to do that. Of course, you know, whatever uh, region or county or if you a district that you grow, you've been born in in China, you have to remain there the rest of your life. So you can't move up. You can't develop an idea. You can't come up with a better plan. All the technology the Chinese have, they stole from us. It doesn't operate in order to enlighten or build up their whole, the society of their whole country. They just, it, it's used to empower the communists in China. That's it. If the people get sick and, and they die in the, in the rice patties producing grain for the country, then so be it. And everyone is really just a slave of the state. And ultimately just, um, there is no independence or freedom or, or liberty. That's what we're seeing in Hong Kong. It's a fight for, in a, a resistance against the tyranny of this monstrous Chinese Communist Party. So let's listen to this fascinating interview we have lined up here. This is American Thought Leaders, and it's Bill Gertz doing the episode Leaked Database Suggests Widespread CCP Infiltration. So let's go ahead and give it a, a go here. This is a really fascinating interview, and uh, we really couldn't get around it. We needed to play it first. Embedded Marxist-Leninist system with Chinese characteristics, as they like to say. And I think it's important to understand that membership in, in the Chinese Communist Party uh, makes those people devoted not to the uh, nation of China, 
or to the people of China, but to the political party of the CCP. And they are definitely in the task to do any task that the party wants, whether that's collecting intelligence, uh, suborning foreign officials, uh, gathering information that could be useful for government and party agencies. So it's a very important that these have been identified. I think that intelligence services around the world are now going to be able to take a look at a lot of these people and find out how many of them are spies, uh, how many of them are operating on behalf of, say, China's Ministry of State Security uh, and, and the like. But I, say, I think the important thing is that we've, in the last few years, we've recognized the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party, and that's really important. Now we can start unraveling some of their networks. You know, uh, one of the commentaries that I heard, which I think both you and I uh, won't find serious, but people are thinking this sort of thing. They're saying, well, so, yeah, they're, they're part of a, a political party. What's the big deal, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's not just a political party. It's a uh, it's an ideological uh, uh, drive, as I say in my book, to basically take over the world. And the Chinese are doing that systematically. Again, uh, we're having a vigorous debate on the nature of the Chinese communist system. Uh, I think, uh, again, people have tried to minimize it, play it down. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been the most significant in making this point that uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party has tried to co-opt the entire uh, Chinese history and culture as if uh, there is no difference. And I think this is important to understand that uh, this is really a, a, a party that's very similar to the Soviet Communist Party. And again, people have tried to say, well, they're not really communists. They like to trade. They like to make money. But when you look closely at every leader uh, since Mao Zedong in China uh, has uh, orchestrated a massive capitalist conspiracy against China. So they see themselves as besieged by the capitalist world. They see themselves as basically an ideological war with a non-communist world. Uh, they can make concessions, they can be practical in certain terms, but there is this ideological war. And we need to start waging that war. This has been a war that's been waged by one side, the Chinese side. And now the West, the free world, needs to wake up and start fighting back against the Chinese Communist Party. So one of the things in this recent uh, Telegraph article is they so they've been mining this database as a number of entities are uh, like like us of course um, they found that there's at least one partner uh, that's a Communist Party member in each of those big four accounting firms that essentially you know audit every major you know multinational I suppose corporation and, and so forth to, to the best of my knowledge what is the significance of that. Well, it allows for inside access to very, very valuable and sensitive information that can be used. Uh, if, if the Chinese Communist Party has someone inside of a major financial firm, that's, uh, that's really gold in terms of the party, say if they wanted to manipulate uh, that company's uh, uh, information. They could do that uh, in ways that would benefit certain companies, say 
Chinese companies that are listed on various stock exchanges. Again, this is a big issue right now. The, uh, the president on his desk waiting for either signature or veto is a bill that would uh, basically force Chinese companies listed on U.S. capital markets to basically divest unless they agree to Western uh, accounting practices. So we know, you know, it's almost like a mafia kind of system, the Communist Party, and they can use information that they gain from inside of companies or inside of foreign governments, and they know how to put all of this together. It's not disparate pieces of information. They have major plans in place. Uh, for example, the Made in China 2025, which uh, is directed the entire nation uh, to allow China to lead in the high-tech areas, whether it's uh, rare earth minerals, uh, that's one area, of computer microchips, things like that. So getting someone inside who can provide this information to this Communist Party, they can then use that and exploit that in ways that will benefit them and harm uh, what they regard as their adversaries, which is the rest of the non-Communist world. Bill, you make an interesting point about how uh, there's this collection, there's not necessarily sort of massive collection by every individual, but not these, all of these uh, different pieces of information kind of go to a central point. I'm wondering if you could actually speak to that, how, uh, how the CCP intelligence collection differs from uh, what we typically think of as collection in the West. Well, in, in, in the uh, West, in the United States in particular, they've developed this myth, uh, especially within uh, the U.S. intelligence and counterintelligence community, that they call it the grains of sand uh, theory. That is that uh, Chinese nationals, especially party members, uh, and especially diplomats and intelligence service personnel and business people, are all collectors of information and that they go out and they get these grains of sand of information and but the argument was that they have been unable to integrate all of that disparate information into a coherent picture. I disagree with that strongly. I think that they do have a very centralized system that can take that information and utilize it. Yeah, certainly some sectors uh, may not be communicating clearly with other Chinese uh, collectors, but they are able to use it. And, and I highlight this in my book, uh, uh, Deceiving the Sky, when I talk about cyber espionage in the case of a of a, a Chinese People's Liberation Army hacker named Su Bin. He was based in Canada, um, and he was able for a total of about $340,000 steal uh, about $3 billion worth of technology from the Boeing company related to the C-17 military transport. The uh, This is the real workhorse of the American military. It's the key to expeditionary warfare, which is an American specialty. And now the Chinese not only were able to steal that information about the C-17, they actually very rapidly applied it to their Y-20 transport, which looks very similar to the C-17. And uh, just recently, the Congressional China Commission put out a report said they've only got 10 of these transports. But in a sign of how much China is expanding its military forces, they plan to have 400 of these Y-20 transports in the coming decades. So clearly, China is on the march around the world, and they are spying at a, at a fantastic rate and able to use the information 
not just to gather it, but to put it into practice. And just quickly, there's also evidence of these Communist Party members actually within consulates and, and, and American consulates and embassies. Uh, uh, but I believe it's consulates, just to just to be clear. But what is what does that actually mean? Of course, we, we know a little bit about from what you've said. But what is what are the implications of it actually being in these U.S. government missions? Well, that's not a surprise. Yeah, they, they call them uh, foreign national employees inside uh, embassies. And uh, this confirms what many, many suspected, that the foreign nationals who are granted this extraordinary access basically to be allowed to work, and they, they rely on foreign employees uh, in their embassies and consulates around the world. Uh, and they're assumed to be uh, working for the uh, intelligence service of China. Uh, but now I think that the fact that they've been able to identify these employees, uh, the way it's been done is you can go through the list and then you can go and get the diplomatic list at, uh, at the various embassies and consulates. And you can see uh, in the case of Shanghai, there were several of these Communist Party members that are employed by the U.S. consulate in Shanghai. Um, uh, the consulate has acknowledged that. They recognize it as a concern. Uh, the question then is, will this lead to uh, the State Department taking the decision, uh, hey, we're not going to allow uh, Chinese Communist Party members to be employed in, at the uh, embassies and consulates? Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Like Again, like I say, they, uh, a lot of these foreign missions rely heavily on their uh, foreign employees to get a lot of things done, but we'll see how that plays out. So this is just such a giant database. I mean, it's over 2 million entries. I, from what I understand, it's about 1.05 million entries when they're deduplicated. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of mining of this data to be done by a lot of different people. What types of information are most interesting to you from there? Maybe you can give a hint to some you know, budding researchers here. Well, I think that uh, the way to look at it is especially, well, first of all, there's 93 million people in the Chinese Communist Party. So this is a relatively small percentage of their party membership. But I think what's significant is that it will allow people, researchers, investigative reporters like myself, uh, to begin to trace some of the patterns of employment and penetrations by these uh, places that then can be used to go and analyze how other sectors that we don't have lists for are penetrated by Chinese officials. Um, this is a, an area of a very important focus. I think the State Department uh, under Pompeo has not gotten to the point where they want to, but they want us, they, they have already restricted entry into the United States by Chinese Communist Party officials, recognizing that they pose a threat, whether it's an intelligence threat or uh, a malign influence threat. And um, I think that it will also help uh, to really expose the, uh, the corruption within China, because a lot of the so-called princelings, the offspring of top party officials, uh, they not only come to the United States, they park their money here, uh, they send their children here to universities, they, they drive around in Lamborghinis, uh, and, uh, and some of them even manage to get uh, U.S. passports 
And so this again is under the Chinese communist system, this is a major no-no. So I think we can begin to start looking at uh, identifying some of the uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party efforts to uh, exploit the free and open system that we have. And again, uh, if we go to a system of reciprocity, the first thing that should be done would be to cut off the access of those people unless, they're grant, unless China grants similar access uh, to Americans in China. And unless that happens, I think uh, all of the Chinese uh, party members should be expelled from the United States. Yeah, I want to take a little bit of an aside here that you just mentioned. This, this is a fascinating phenomenon that the, the, the Communist Party elite, not just the Communist Party itself, but the Communist Party elite, uh, many of them we know have actually offshored a lot of their money, which as you, you said, it, it's, it's a big no-no. I think it's even officially punishable by death, possibly. I, 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 can't, I don't know what the current uh, state of that law is, but um, can you speak to that a little bit before we go on, please? Well, corruption in China is uh, extensive, rampant. It's a key feature of the party system uh, since uh, the 70s when they did their so-called reform and opening up. Um, it, it inspired massive uh, amounts of uh, corruption, financial corruption at, at, at many, many different levels. Um, uh, Xi Jinping ostensibly has supposedly cracked down on corruption uh, but he's used that basically as a, a front for going after his political opponents. Uh, so the corruption system, again, this is something that uh, I have not seen a single uh, American think tank produce, or the U.S. government for that matter, produce any kind of a report on how corruption among the Chinese elite works and how it, it plays out. I mean, that's certainly something that every American should be aware of. So we know what kind of system we're dealing with and what kind of people that we've been dealing with in the case of the, the Chinese party elite. Uh, they do have lots of their money here. They put it in also into real estate. Uh, they put it into offshore accounts. Uh, I think we got a taste of this when the Panama Papers broke and they showed that uh, how some of the Chinese elite, it's very difficult to track down this because often what the, uh, what the Chinese communist members do is they don't use their own names, they use their offspring or their spouses and that way they, they hide it. But, um, you know, I think the U.S. intelligence community should be tasked with going after this information and, and revealing it uh, to our policymakers and ultimately to the, uh, to the general public. So that was Bill Gertz and a national security correspondent for the Washington Times and author of Deceiving the Sky. And they're really discussing that leaked database. And it doesn't surprise me that that leak came out now. And it doesn't surprise me that he's talking about really going for the throat of the CCP. And we have to point out here that, of course, the Chinese people and the independence and liberty and freedom of the Chinese populations are, are foremost in our minds because it's really the communist regime there that's keeping, it's endangering the world and keeping the people there so enslaved to a system of darkness and murder and hopelessness. So that it's, a, it's a really just the ultimate 
atrocity of our time that the communist regime there has been able to really just pollute with such huge abandon while belonging uh, to environmental organizations. I mean, they're just so, they're subterfuge and their duplicity is, is to such an extent that it's, they're maniacal and we can't trust them. And, and they're building up, you know, on top of the, the poverty of the poverty of the people, they have billions and billions of people in, in, in their populations who are in total abject penury and paupery to just homelessness that, you know, the people are practically unschooled, um, itinerant rice paddy workers by the million who are illiterate and who ultimately are just have their body parts sold uh, on the market by these, these monsters in the communist regime. So you have to recognize that this is really just about liberating the Uyghur populations from the concentration camps, liberating the, the populations of Chinese who are totally chained in hopeless bondage and, and servitude. And so it seems to me that as they start to target their money and make these issues known that it will cause an absolute upheaval in the Chinese country. Remember the Tiananmen Square is something that ultimately China doesn't even allow people to discuss, you know, on the internet. I mean, you know, you have to recognize that Amazon, Google, Facebook, all these companies are operating in China and they're doing the bidding of the communist party by making sure that if the communist party wants the people to be deceived or to not receive this kind of information or to have only information that's tailored uh, by the state of China, by the communist party, then they want to get the communist party news. I mean, that's the kind of system of internet that's being operated there in China. And these tech companies are getting used to how to enforce propaganda, how to use uh, the apparatus of information, ubiquitous technotronic power of information, um, watching people's streaming information on their smart devices and just seeing how they operate spying on them. I mean, ultimately, these same companies are going to operate here in the United States and they're not going to, you know, they're going to learn these techniques of autocracy and apply them here. And that's what we're really seeing. We're seeing them decide that they want to peddle one narrative in the presidential elections. And this has really got to, everything to do with China because their money and the, you know, the protection of that corruption with the Biden family is, um, is really going to come to the forefront in these dorm reports. So we have to point out that half of the people in Washington, D.C. are corrupted by Chinese communist money and their sellouts, and they should probably be arrested if we follow the law. I mean, when I drive down the road around here and I don't have my license in good order, I'm going to go to jail. And I'm going to spend time in jail for not being in good standing with the law around here. But these guys in Washington have absolutely no, they're, they're you know, similar to the, the regime in China. They have absolutely no boundaries, no, no limitations on their ability to, to corrupt as far as the media, social media, the, the internet, the, the search engines, and every level, and even when shopping with Amazon, deciding which books they won't, they won't have the, the particular book. Abigail Schreier's book that discusses the uh, how demented the the LGBTQ stuff has gotten with kids and and how kind of psychotic and perverse it's become in, in the college campuses for people to with their transgendered ideology. It's you know so Ab Abigail Schreier's discussion on these matters cannot be allowed to be viewed. You're not allowed to see it. You're not allowed to know about it. You can't go and select your book. And and so that's what kind of totalitarian control we're talking about, where they will just limit all opposition from existing in the cyber world. And, and they'll try to, if they don't have the, the president of their making, then they'll try to limit the speech of a president of the United States. And so the tyranny, the, the out of control 
totalitarian nature of these really communists is the neo-Marxists that are operating there. You know, you have to understand that Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and all the, the, the Amazon and all these individuals are no different than the BLM and Antifa actors that are on the streets that are just enacting their will. Ultimately, their, their money is probably paying for it. And it's really just working hand in glove. So as the people march around with torches and, and burn businesses and walk around and beat up anybody with a Donald Trump hat, then ultimately this is the will of the, the tyranny of a technotronic state that you've been involved with and giving all your information to everywhere you go on your phone. So your phones are constantly being monitored. Everything you do, every digital transaction, every single bank transaction, every minute when you wake up, when you lay down, everything that goes on with you at all times has been becoming something that they're feeding into their algorithm. And it's all being, they're all cooperating with China. They're hoping to turn the world into a Chinese technotronic tyranny. And they don't see these Judeo-Christian values or these old 1776 constitution or, you know, you know, and ultimately with the technology they have, you know, you can have an AR-15 all day, but it's really just like a musket. It's like a black powder rifle, you know, that, you know, with a shooting a ball. That's ultimately what when we're standing up to the, the kind of technology and the robotics and the swarming, you know, nanotech killer bees that can swarm in and kill people. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that, that China is devising. They're trying to get an AI, a communist AI to root out individuals. Imagine a micromanagement that, you know, a state that wakes you up and puts you to bed every day on a clock. And it's, it's incomprehensible because I just do what I want. I walk around, I quit my job, I get a new job, I buy a car, I sell, I sell some silver coins, I earn a living. I just do, I choose to do what I want. But the state there in China, it dictates for you what you're going to do. You're going to be a window washer. You're going to be a guy that flips pancakes. You're going to, you know, it, it tells you what your life is going to be and it lays it out for you. There's absolutely no, no such thing as an idea like freedom or liberty there. And they sure as hell don't want us to proliferate our ideas of liberty and freedom to their people there. And that's what kind of ideological war we're in here. So their money is, is totally crap. I mean, but they have nukes. So we have to think hard about how we're going to move forward to just totally capsize the Chinese communist regime and replace it with a democracy there in China. A republic, a place, a place where people can choose to have their own freedom, and that would be something we should pray for, and we ought to seek and strive for as a nation, as a national heritage, a national ethic, and a national character. We should be moving and striving towards this end goal of ending the slavery and the barbarity of the Chinese communist regime. I have a very interesting interview here. It's done with the Crossroads program with Joshua Phillip, and the title is CCP is taking over other nations that were once free states. And this is an interview with Si Hoon Kim on the captive nations of China. It's going to set this interview up for us to listen to it. I think it's absolutely crucial for us to understand what's really at stake and what the people around the world, I mean, outside America, what people out there who are not in the free world are dealing with when it comes to China. People in Zimbabwe, people all over the world are having a really hard time when it comes to the communist Chinese regime and their policies. So let's take a listen to what's happening here. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We're sitting here with Sei Hoon Kim, director of the Captive Nations Coalition of the Committee on Present Danger China. We're going to be talking about the Chinese Communist Party's abusive policies towards other countries. Sei Hoon Kim, it's a real pleasure having you on Crossroads. Thank you. 
Now, you've been working on this coalition of these captive peoples of China. Tell us how this works or what you're working on. So the Captive Nations Coalition, or the CNC, as with its own acronym, um, it's made up of folks that have been taken over and were specifically oppressed by the Chinese Communist Party over the last um, 70 years, I would say, since its founding. So we represent uh, those who are in the United States as well as those who are outside of the United States um, trying to get their voices heard to the international world. Now, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo actually tweeted out a photo with some of you folks on there talking about this action. It was interesting to see because... This is a very different way of presenting the human rights abuses of the Chinese Communist Party because we know that they invaded Tibet and they invaded uh, Hong Kong now as right. well. Uh, and they invaded, for example, uh, you know, Southern Mongolia, Inner Mongolia. And we see now that these are kind of isolated incidents. The idea of uniting them right. under one issue is, is a very unique stance. Now, I'm curious, how did this coalition come together? Well, the coalition came together, I would say, since the foundation of the CCP itself. It never was really uh, united you know, to a point that it is today, strategically. Um, and what I mean by strategically is that you know, since we have uh, this blessings of technology and the fact that there is a closer community awareness now, for example, with the, what's happening to the people of East Turkestan or what is known as the Uyghur issue, um, people are becoming a lot more aware in that regard. So in terms of the general awareness, in terms of the general information that's out there, these communities are a lot more um, united than ever before. And they have the need to do that. Every single one of these communities have now come to realize that if we do not unite and do something, in order to get our voices heard, we, we are going to be silenced forever. So with all of that together um, is how this coalition came about. And um, the Committee on Present Danger China um, decided this is a platform that we need to provide to the folks from these captive nations so that not only their voices can be heard, but a realistic action can be taken in order to ensure that there is true freedom that they'll be enjoyed uh, in the future. So. Now, when you, when you met with Pompeo, what was the message you presented to him on this group? So, Secretary Pompeo, first and foremost, was extremely sympathetic. Um, he was also extremely very, very genuine about um, just meeting each and every single one of us. Um, I was actually uh, inspired. Also, I was also very um, happy, extremely happy, uh, that he took the time to hear from each of each and every single member of the Captive Nations group. Uh, so we had a representative from uh, Tibet, East Turkestan, uh, Southern Mongolia, and another gentleman who represented Kazakhstan, which is a huge Belt and Road Initiative uh, project nation by the Chinese Communist Party, and is one of the most important countries uh, in order for that initiative to come into fruition into the future. So we presented all these cases in terms of why this is uh, this needs critical attention and why this is important to the United States and really to the rest of the world. Um, he, he listened very, very carefully and he also said this is something that is much needed and he said uh, to us that this is an initiative that um, is extremely important for all of us. Um, 
interpret that as something that is important to every single one of us, not only in the United States, but to the rest of the world. So that's the, at least the gist of the message that we've received from, the, from Secretary Pompeo. And I would even say it's, like, it's the most important thing um, to a certain degree. I'm curious, when it comes to the CCP, its agendas, and what this represents, you said this is the most important issue, right, with China, right, and one of the most important, and something important for the world as well. Why do you say it's important for the world, this issue? Well, it is important for the world because, you know, one of the things that the CCP does historically, they have done, I should say, um, is that every single place that they have taken over, per se, other than different parts of China, and I, I would even I would even um, add that the Chinese people have been the first victims of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, after they were done with them, they uh, they moved on to take over these other nations that were once independent and free. Um, and they have tested out their oppression. Uh, specifically, we see today um, slave labor, uh, which is rampant, uh, and that has which has unfortunately have driven uh, the Chinese economy for a very very long time. It's going still going on today. And what is happening to the Uyghurs, for example, um, and Kazakhs, and all the other Turkic people in in what is known as Xinjiang, the sort of mass surveillance system, for example, that's being exported all over the world. So if you look at it from that degree. You can't help but to wonder, is this going to reach our shores one day? And is this going to be affecting me and my family one day? And what will be the consequences that we have to pay at that time? And it scares you. And it scares you because all of these things that we thought were once a foreign issue will become reality for us one day. So that is why I say it's one of the most important things because this is a threat to literally every single one of us right now. And one of the things that the Captain Nations Coalition uh, aims to do is to also provide a voice to all those individuals from the Belt and Road Initiative uh, countries. As you know, the Belt and Road Initiative um, is what is known as a neo-colonialism effort by the CCP. And once they take over these areas after a series of episodes of countries not being able to pay back these massive loans that the, that the CCP has given to them, or um, a, a takeover of, um, of of a land because of a historical claim, like what's happening in Tajikistan, for example, right now. Um, you know, it serves as an example a lot more at that time because now we see their expansion becoming reality to sovereign nations. So. By engaging with the captive nations, we want to also let the world know that as these countries were taken over um, in the past, when they were once free and independent, this could become a reality for all countries in the globe. And that is pretty scary. Um, and that's really the message that, um, you know, that was has been driving, driving us uh, till this day. And, and this isn't far-fetched either. We, right. we know the Chinese Communist Party uses its abuses in, for example, Xinjiang, also called East Turkestan, as the testing ground for different types of authoritarian monitoring or other practices to keep the populations under control. And when they work there, they replicate them over in other parts of China. And we also know, as you mentioned, when the Chinese Communist Party goes abroad and makes these business deals, 
under the 1.1 Road Initiative. Um, these technologies come within the package right, of that when they build the infrastructure. The, the idea that the Chinese Communist Party is spreading its model of government using East Turkestan or Xinjiang as one of the models, for example, of that type of oppressive government, and encouraging other governments in the world to follow that model. You know, th this, is, this really is, actually, this is an interesting point. It really is um, an image of the CCP creating its own system around the world, and maybe the front line of battle of this is these nations standing up against that and pushing back. Is, is this how you're viewing it? You mentioned this is one of the most important issues, that this is kind of like the, uh, the, the drawing of the line in these countries themselves. Is this accurate? Absolutely. And on top of that, I would even say that a large portion of the captive nations coalition communities, whether they're Tibetans, Southern Mongolians, um, East Turkestanis, specifically Uyghurs and Kazakhs, or even just um, ordinary Chinese dissidents who are Falun Gong practitioners, uh, Chinese Christians, or just individuals who just simply want democracy. Um, many of them are patriotic, not just towards the United States, but patriotic um, uh, members of a free society. And to them, that's a really, really critical part in the continue of, continuation of their survival too. Because not only are they fighting for their own freedom, but they're also warning the world about what could come, what could become reality, as it did for them. But also at the same time, they teach us, every single one of these folks, at least have taught me and many, many people in the committee and elsewhere, how important and how valuable the freedom that exists here in the United States and the rest of the free world. And in a way, uh, the Captain Nations Coalition, um, you know, aims to spread that message to each and every one of us that, you know, it doesn't matter what you are, it doesn't matter what political uh, party you affiliate yourself with. At the end of the day, we're still part of this free society, and there are those who are telling us that this is an important part of humanity and that we must do everything that we can to protect the freedoms that we have in this country. Josh Phillip and Si-Hoon Kim and you can see that they're working really hard to put the information together for us and to really get the, the word out that the dangers of the Chinese Communist Party and, and what their, their really remarkable strategy has been to really kind of co-opt and subvert the entire world to an extension of their power and we can see that, that it's been really insidious and that that political tyranny has really worked really well in the United Nations to try to get other countries to create policy on a global scale that really weakens the rest of the world and empowers China and so we can see that India is resisting Vietnam they're sending warships to the South China Sea. There's a, areas that are their borders of their country. And it really, it's come down to a conflict now between those in the world who want to remain free and the Communist Party there in China. The CCP has to be confronted. And this is ultimately an issue, the issue that you can see that the Democrats are totally sold out. They're just really just a bought out and paid for co-opt a subsidiary of the CCP at this point. And you can see that their, their mouthpieces like Eric Swalwell and Nancy Pelosi have been just, and practically even Biden have practically just singing the praises 
of the, the Communist Chinese Party. And ultimately, like we, like we said before, we had to separate and differentiate a difference between the actual historical, authentic populations of Chinese people that are ultimately the main country that's being enslaved there in that region by the Communist Party, let alone Tibet and other regions around them, they're being enslaved. But ultimately, the Chinese people as a, as a populace, of, uh, as, a, as a nation, is ultimately being enslaved. And they're ultimately, ultimately, and in the end of the matter, they're being left in chains without any voice to suffer in dungeons, to be cast away in prison camps, to be killed and, and have their bodies used and sold um, on the black market. It's really just horrific, the information. I don't think we really have even got into the full depth of the, the horror show that is really what the Chinese party has done to China and the Chinese people itself. So as they're trying to constantly lie and create a, a fictitious number that they call the value of their money, we here in the West and around the rest of the, uh, the civilized world have to bargain in a stock market and use indexes and, and trade on the value of our currency with, with numbers that are have some kind of semblance of truth, but ultimately with them, with, with the yen, with their dot, with their uh, Chinese money, they ultimately have an inflated, basically distortion of the facts when they put their money out there. And it's, it's, they, they cheat and manipulate on such a high level that ultimately it's a, it's a kind of a shock. It's, it's, it's a shock that they even get to really survive and grow the way they do. Ultimately the United States and the other, actors around the world have got to step into place here and work overtime to do more than just put out um, leak lists of the Communist Party, which is, it, it, I'm sure that's helpful in their, in their attempt to move forward here, but we really need to undermine the apparatus of the Chinese Communist Party altogether and every front around the world where they're trying to take the mineral resources and to, you know, ultimately, I think they're even in the Arctic region competing against the United States and even Russia in that region, trying to get their hands all over the globe virtually. So their threat to the United States is growing and it's epidemic. And we need to recognize their penetration into the governing structure, into the, uh, like I think they were talking about, into the embassies and into all levels of government. And when you see people like the Trump administration resisting, you can see that the deep state is being uh, vivified and energized by the, the money and by the political persuasion by the Chinese communists. They, they've become so deeply ingrained with their corruption into the background of Washington, D.C., that the, the whole Washington apparatus needs to be just completely washed out. And again, we need to look at people like you know, the FBI director, Christopher Ray, does he have anything to, you know, anything to say about these issues? I mean, where, where is he at? Where, where has he been at when it comes to the corruption in the Democratic Party with, with our largest adversary, our biggest enemy is got spies just crawling all over Washington, D.C. and Christopher Ray is over there. Just uh, who knows? Who, know, who knows what, how deeply, how pervasive the, the partisanship has become so that the, the, uh, the rule of law and the justice system is just broken. At what point doesn't Christopher Ray recognize that millions and millions of dollars from the corrupt Chinese regime has been pumped through to to manipulate the, the vice presidency of Joe Biden, and now he's trying to become the president? And we have major questions about the uh, 
Chinese infiltration into our elections and the FBI and old Christopher Ray's over there just silent as death. Can't can't hear a peep. It's crickets. So yeah, I think that Donald Trump should overturn the apple cart in every way to get us to a new day of American patriotism where we can have a chance of survival. We're not just going to become a, uh, a rotted out shell, a corrupt, empty, uh, empty shell of our former freedom, a free republic. So let's continue on here as we're doing our our episode here. And it's really remarkable how ingrained the Chinese Communist Party has become in our university level too, with the large amount of students that they send here to be educated by the what, what they consider to be the evils of capitalism have somehow spawned this system of education that is necessary for all the young people of China there to come and, and participate. And ultimately, they are using the education they receive to cobble together and build up the power of their tyrannical autocratic state. So it's going to be totalitarian cyber tyranny is on the menu here in China and they're, and they're, they're exporting it throughout the world. And we need to recognize that really it's the naval power of the United States is coming into really focus here because it's our ability to project power around the world and in all the different theaters of battle throughout the world that they give us our prestige as a world power. And so since China wants to compete with that, they're having to find a way to compete with our power. And it's really the new great power competition at sea. And this is exactly the discussion they're having with Jeffrey Gresh here on, on this interview, Geopolitics and Empire. So this is Jeffrey Gresh, Eurasia and the new great power competition at sea. And it's a fascinating discussion and it just has everything to do with informing us about what is really playing out here in the the geopolitical theater while we're at home having a hard time holding down the fundamentals of our democracy and this totally ridiculous election charade that's taken place it's almost absurd how scandalous this this election has become and it's rocked us to the core because we can no longer really call ourselves a great democracy or, or a democratic republic if um, we have such a horrible track record of actually conducting our own elections and we're even looking at being totally sold out on every level within the the media and within the internet of just accepting this fraudulent candidate this illegal president uh, in, in the person of Joe Biden who's been corrupted by the Chinese uh, communist regime for for a long time and and the the, the exposure of the scandal of Hunter Biden I mean to have this puppet of, of China entering into the White House and then being ushered in by the technotronic state is really just, you know, it, it really shows the attempt to at a fait accompli of the CCP over the independence and liberty of the American people. So once you're voting on our accounts and it's just Chinese Communist Party money in Washington buying up all of our, our liberties, then you, you can see that we can no longer have a country. It's been a while since I've had uh, academics uh, of your stature on the podcast to talk deep uh, geopolitics, um, so I'll have to do this more regularly. Uh, This may be the last uh, podcast episode uh, of the year, so I hope uh, listeners enjoy it. Now, Eurasia is on the rise. Uh, I would know. I've been living smack in the geographic center of Asia the last few years. Uh, There's the Russia-China dragon bear that's all the rage, Uh, the talk of Mackinder's nightmare. 
coming to pass, uh, that of Eurasia uh, awakening and taking hold of the world island, or as Spikeman put it, who rules Eurasia controls the destinies uh, of the world. You also quote in your book Sir Walter Raleigh from, I believe, the 17th century, who said, quote, whoever commands the sea commands trade uh, and the riches of the world and consequently the, the world itself, end quote. So, in your book, you've also said that Russia and China are well positioned to unify and control the strategic sea lanes of communication that surround Eurasia, uh, or what many call the world island. And so, you know, the competition that has emerged in recent years is taking place across maritime Eurasia between the continent's main rivals, China, Russia, and India, which is what, what you focus on in your book, uh, as they vie to achieve great power status and exp expand beyond their regional seas. So. Um, could you set the table for us, so to speak, introduce us to this idea and provide the context of, of what's happening in Eurasia and with these uh, rising great powers? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think it's a good, you know, I'm glad that you referred to, uh, you know, sort of Halford, McKinder, as well as Nicholas Speakman, and of course the third person to add in there from a maritime perspective is um, Mahan. Uh, Alfred Theremahan. And so I think, and I do, I started giving a geopolitical perspective on Eurasia. And as we know, Mackinder uh, looked at, you know, Eurasia, you know, being in Kazakhstan, you, you, you appreciate the perspective being really the, the heartland, the territorial. Um, and, and of course, Mackinder was looking at Eurasia as the world island, as you say, but very much from a you know, interior heartland perspective. And then if you look at Nicholas Speakman, um, who was writing Second World War, he tried to put it in perspective of, of looking at rising uh, Nazi Germany. I think he wrote his some of his main works in 1942, specifically looking at Imperial Japan and saying, we need to focus on the rim lands of Eurasia. And by projecting from the sea to the land, then that's the way to get into the interior. But the interesting thing about them is that neither really dealt with the Arctic. And as we know, the Arctic is melting, and obviously it's debatable uh, in the sense that how fast is it going to melt? But the reality is that it's melting. And so that's going to pave the way uh, faster, slower, uh, but it's happening for Russia in particular to really take advantage. So what I'm attempting to do really in the book is to look at not necessarily from the Mackinder perspective, but look at it from Speakman as well as Mahan, who talked about controlling the sea lanes, projecting sea power. Uh, this is the way to kind of the great power status, and he was looking, you know, at the British specifically. And so, with the melting of the Arctic, I'm trying to show that we need to look at both the Western periphery of Eurasia and that of Western Europe and Russia descending down increasingly, uh, being much more of a spoiler in recent years, as well as in the East. And then of course, the valuable sea lands of communication that traverse the high North, but at the same time, uh, China being very much uh, playing an increased role. Of course, East Asia is its regional seas and territorial seas, uh, but seeing Russia and China uh, as I point out, I pointed out recently another article looking at their joint sea exercises, for example, which are pretty fascinating to see. In 2017, for example, Russia and China conducting for the first time joint sea exercises in the Baltic Sea. Uh, in 2015, they were in the Mediterranean Sea. So seeing that making, for, for the case of China, pretty long route 
and that that takes its own logistical efficiency um, and its power projection capabilities. And so, what I really wanted to look at is how are the the sea lanes, how is the maritime competition changing as now we see the Arctic kind of you know release what what Mackinder and Speakman saw as this fourth wall, which is a big ice wall now coming down. Yeah, that was one of my uh, questions, I guess, towards the end, but since you mentioned it, uh, on the issue uh, of the Arctic, it's really becoming an interesting place. Uh, we've previously done, I think, one episode on the Arctic where we spoke with Klaus Dodds, um, and as you said, the Arctic is opening up, uh, as well as the technology that's allowing, I think, countries to go further into the Arctic, um, to penetrate further into the Arctic. I, I believe countries like Russia and China are building these uh, nuclear icebreakers like crazy. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, China has designed its second icebreaker and has declared a polar silk road. So, you know, China, from where China is, it's reaching far out in, into the north. And in your book, you also mentioned that the U.S. seems uh, absent in, in, in the Arctic. So maybe if you could just add a, a, another final take in what's happening there in the Arctic. Yeah, absolutely. So for right now, in the Arctic, absolutely, as I put the last chapter, it's the, you know, the, the future frontier. And, and, and Russia certainly controlling or having about 50% or 50 plus percent of the geography of the Arctic really stands to gain in pretty significant ways. More importantly, there are two main ways to traverse the Arctic. Through the Northwest Passage, which primarily goes through Canada from Alaska, if you think about it from U.S. perspective, through Canada, there's still a lot of icebergs. It's still pretty treacherous. The Northern Sea Route, however, primarily traverses through Russia's territorial seas. And this is where China and Russia have increasingly undergone uh, you know, more study, investment in icebreakers, as you say, and specifically, Russia currently has about 40 icebreakers, and so far surpasses any other power. The United States only has about, they say on paper three, really two, but the reality is about one in operation. Uh, and not, you know, I think there, there is a desire to see more investment down the road, but for right now, as an Arctic power, we're, we're not as involved um, compared to certainly Russia and a growing power of China. Now, you mentioned the Polar Silk Road, I think more of a, uh, you know, again, projecting, signaling that it wants to become more of, um, you know, important player, and that's why it's joining increasingly forces with Russia. But for right now, you know, as I point out, one of the first main points of the book is to look at geoeconomics. And there's so many valuable resources up in the Arctic. And just to give a, you know, quick snapshot, approximately 90% of Russia's natural gas reserves are in the Arctic. About 60% of the oil, oil reserves are in the Arctic. In addition, there are many you know, wealthy rare earth metals such as um, diamonds and nickel and palladium. So Russia, they're just, just a you know, bounty of riches to really take advantage of. And for that matter, too, China of trying to invest. They've begun to get some of the natural gas out. It hasn't been as successful as possible, uh, but they're certainly testing the waters, if you will. And in addition to that, really sending ships over the northern sea route. In this past year, it's, it's important to note that the northern sea route was open for around 120, 121 days 
consecutively, and this is the largest uh, span of time that's ever been open, and certainly that's going to continue, uh, you know, moving forward at a pretty, you know, much, much stronger rate. It's a vicious cycle, right, because the more uh, ships you have traversing the high north, uh, certainly there, there's certain pollution and the ship's, um, you know, exhaust, if you will, is going to, you know, speed up, keep the waters, you know, contribute to the ice melts um, as there's more industrialization. But for right now, uh, you know, mainly, uh, as I like to say, fish and oil, and I haven't mentioned the fish part here, that's important too, around 240 species of fish. And as the waters warm, these fish uh, and other seafood species are moving up to the north. Again, just rich in, in not only the oil and gas and other rare earth minerals, but also fisheries. So it's an area that, uh, you know, certainly continue, we need to continue to look at. And the last point back to the United States. There has been a growing interest um, in the United States, and I think the two senators of Alaska have really tried to push um, various agencies to look more at what they can do in the Arctic. Um, but for the moment, it's more of a kind of economic game. And so you mentioned as well, so geoeconomics and China and a large part of your book focuses on China, which I mean, obviously, you know, China's the big player, big rising player now. And so we see China transforming its geoeconomic investments, as you point out in your, in your book, into geostrategic assets such as forward operating bases and ports that they're building in Africa, in, in um, Djibouti, in, in uh, Gwandar, in Pakistan, uh, you know, along the Indian Ocean via their string of pearls. Uh, and so these commercial Chinese ports could be switched into, I guess, military ports uh, at any future moment. Uh, China and Greece uh, bought off 67% of the Piraeus ports. And then subsequently, uh, you go into detail uh, about this in your book, where once they got that port in Greece, they brought in lower wage uh, Chinese nationals, which then led to the designation uh, of the European workforce, and then you know, then they're raising port fees, which then hurts the European uh, ship uh, industry. And so, um, uh, so what are your th thoughts on you know China's expansion into into Europe, into Africa, uh, and elsewhere? Yeah, so it, it's a good good question, and I think you know it's true as I as I point out that first and foremost, you know these Chinese state-run, state-led corporations are leading the way uh, with you know certainly the Maritime Silk Road, but also if you think about the shipping industry in general, is all about bottom line. Uh, you know, just to go briefly back to the Arctic for a second, by traversing the sea lanes in the high north, you're shaving off, you know, around 30% of your voyage. And that could save on a one-way trip around $500,000. So that's, that's significant cash. Now, if you come through the southern routes, you know, again, Costco shipping is one of the behemoths, growing behemoths in the shipping industry. And so they've been really at the forefront of, of trying to fortify, strengthen, and invest in a lot of smaller supply logistics, shipping logistics firms uh, that is emerging into a, a really much more robust maritime trade network on the high seas. And then in turn that, you know, 
can can evolve into what you rightfully point out is the security element of it, right? So the economics, and this is not different from what other powers have done, certainly, but it makes sense that then the security arm or the naval arm is going to have to follow the economic interests. So I'll give another example. In 2011, uh, the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, at the time, there were approximately 30 or 36,000 Chinese foreign nationals who were working in Libya. That is very interesting, and we will get right back to it right after these messages. So I just want you guys to think about when you're out and about and you're just out somewhere at the club looking at your phone, you need to remember Wendy's Limited. Wendy'sLimited.com. This is Wendy's Boutique, okay? And Wendy's Boutique has got all the hottest new styles and all the, the, the sweetest new different things. You, you, the must-have items for your wardrobe collection. And I always, my wife got me, There, there's even a section called Gifts for Him, and my wife got me an Amani Express watch that, uh, that I love to wear from Wendy's Boutique. So remember, Wendy's Limited, Wendy's Limited, all one word, wendyslimited.com. Come and check it out. It's a word from our sponsor, and we hope that you go check out wendyslimited.com. And we're getting right back to Muammar Gaddafi. And we're in this discussion is Jeffrey Gresh and the Eurasia and the Great Power Competition at Sea. And we're talking about Muammar Gaddafi and how infiltrated his country was with Chinese communist agents uh, and soldiers, uh, you know, at, who were really the same thing at that time. So let's go back to it. How do you get out 36,000 Chinese foreign nationals? You can't fly them out. I mean, you could, but it would take a fleet of, of planes. You, you really, it's the, the most efficient way is to bring in ships. And of course, at the time, they were still kind of, and they've been involved in Djibouti with the anti-piracy operations. They didn't formally establish a military base in Djibouti until 2017. So we're on the clock six, six years, 2011, they just didn't have the network in place. And so they looked to that event of saying, we never want to be caught flat-footed like this again. And in fact, during that uh, episode, they had to reach out to the Greeks who then uh, rented them uh, cruise vessels or other ships they could then bring in and bring the Chinese-born nationals on and then get them out to safety. Um, so it gets at how, you know, this kind of evolution, although I always like to put in perspective too, the Chinese currently only have one overseas base. The Japanese, same thing. They also established a base in Djibouti. That's why Djibouti is a really fast, if you ever get the opportunity, uh, much warmer, uh, similar to Mexico uh, than Kazakhstan, of course. Djibouti being a really fascinating um, spot I had the opportunity to travel to. And you see all the uh, you know foreign powers, the French, of course, as a former colony. Uh, the United States, of course, um, Camp Lemunier is one of our largest bases in Africa. China, of course, has a base. Japan has a base. The Italians have a base. The Germans are there. The UK is there. There's such a high presence because it sits at the Bab el Nadeb, which is an important maritime choke point. But by establishing a base, this then gives China an important jumping off point into Europe. Uh, but to back up what I wanted to kind of put the threads together is to say, to put it in perspective, in the sense that the United States has approximately 500 
you can, it's all about how you define the bases, right? So we can get into the debate about how you define bases, but according to the latest congressional base structure report of 2018, I think there was something like 512 bases, main operating bases. Uh, certainly others look at say it's a much larger number, but compared, you know, it, it's there's a very big stark difference. Um, so I think you know for those who are concerned about well China's gonna uh, have another base here or there, it's very small beginnings right now. But I think where China's very smart is that to the point as you mentioned too in Piraeus, uh, you know there's a dual use nature, and that's the same what happened in Djibouti. Um, you know, when I'd interact with colleagues and counterparts, I'd ask, you know, what, what's going on in Djibouti? Oh, well, it's a logistics and supplies base, supply base. Makes sense, right? And then, of course, in 2017, opening a fully established um, uh, naval base. And you mentioned Guadar. That's the kind of next speculation that the Chinese might do something. Right now, it's debatable as to how successful uh, you know, CPAC uh, or the, the corridor for Pakistan or China-Pakistan economic corridor that goes up through the heartland of Pakistan uh, into Xinjiang province. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of debate on that front. But I think having Wadar at the very least as a link to potentially use down the road, it's not a bad, a bad option from a Chinese perspective. And since we were uh, just now comparing, you know, U.S. foreign military bases and Chinese, I'm not sure. I think the Russians have eight or, or something or six. Um, but I don't remember, recall the numbers. But do you, uh, do you think China by 2030 is going to outnumber, or, or maybe they have already? I, I can't remember the numbers in terms of um, naval vessels. Do you think China will surpass uh, the U.S.? So I think you know, there, there's a lot of good research on on what I call ship counting, right? So, you know, there, there's certainly a focus on how many ships do you have. And currently, you're, you're correct, the Chinese have around 300 um, ships. They want to expand to 330 or so in the next decade, I believe. The United States has around 289, I think, by recent counts, and they just put out a study where they project where they want to build, you know, up to like 500 over the next several decades. But as I pointed out too, I mean, as we know, in any defense planning, you have to plan out a decade or two. And so I think for the United States and others, for that matter, Russia's in the same boat, in, all countries are in the same boat, in that we have yet to see or see the dust settle from, from COVID-19. Right, so I think there are going to be significant financial constraints. So then you go back to how many ships do you have? I think the better question to ask is what is what do you need to prevent against? And what is what sort of ships do we need in peacetime? And what sort of ships and also other capabilities, naval technology, other capabilities that we might need in wartime? And so that, I think, is going to be the critical question. And I think, you know, if you look at a power like uh, like India, which wants to and is in the process of developing now the second um, aircraft carrier, it wants to do a third. It's been very much hamstrung a lot by bureaucracy and inefficiencies. Um, but I think countries are going to have to adapt because these big platforms like an aircraft carrier are enormously expensive and take so long to build and develop.
So that's going to be something to balance for not only the United States but other powers too. Yeah, your book is, I mean, it's 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 a great resource. It covers a lot. I mean, there's a lot in there. We can you can we can go for hours discussing and jumping off to different points. But now, since you mentioned uh, India, let's let's go there uh, because you know it's India has joined the the Western-led uh, Quad, uh, and it seems that India has chosen to stand uh, with the West instead of participating more closely with China's uh, Belt and Road, uh, uh, as you mentioned, CPEC, or even R the RCEP, which I think it, it uh, didn't uh, wish to join. Uh, but in your book, you also mentioned that um, some say it can straddle between the multipolar world and the U.S. Uh, alliance, and you, you detail in your book that it feels threatened and surrounded by China, but it also seems to be lagging behind in its ability to catch up to China uh, in terms of the naval race uh, and other geoeconomic and geostrategic uh, endeavors, and I, I guess this is also largely an economic issue. They don't have the funds like China, so well, what can you tell us about India? Yeah, it's, uh, India is a really fascinating case, and I think the, India is, you know, as you know, India has a long tradition of being part of the non-aligned movement. And, and even to this day, it's very hesitant about jumping full hog into, you know, U.S.-led initiatives. Um, so I think it's kind of moving at an independent pace, and the United States moving forward has to kind of foster... India's own evolution independently. And I think you're seeing increasingly, you know, you mentioned the Quad, which is a good, great example. Uh, and furthermore, in the maritime space, um, the Malabar exercise, which takes place uh, every year, hosted by India and the United States. Uh, and then recently in the past, I think 2015, Japan joined as a permanent member. And then what was significant this year was that Australia was uh, invited for the first time since 2007. So you saw the Quad Lateral, um, you know, the, the quad grouping in the maritime domain for the first time in, in a representation of the growing concerns about China's maritime rise. Leave the interview right there. It's obviously very fascinating. It's 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 an interesting interview. I'll try to include it in with the podcast so you can go ahead and look at it yourself. But we really have to get back to the cold hard facts about what's taking place on the geopolitical horizon here, and we have to recognize that you know China's movements are are very dangerous, and we have to see that that this kind of calculation between a rising power and the current world order is. Is coming into view in an asymmetrical kind of warfare that's really hard to really articulate to the common, you know, voting class, working class people of the United States. So it's hard for us to really express that you know China has become so entangled within our our modern pop culture, with our the celebrities, with you know the whole apparatus of uh, marketing and influence that hits the young people. With soft drinks and uh, you know pop singers and Hollywood stars who who make movies and and we have to recognize that the the politics manipulation game is something China is good at as they work uh, and move forward to make sure that we're in a state of disrepair in a state of of. of division and collapse here in the West and ultimately the politics, even things like transgender politics that become so such a, a, a 
polarized issue and become really toxic for people who are just citizens in our within our United States, these kind of confrontations become something that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is fully invested in and in, uh, provoking as a, a catharsis uh, within our country, with between our, our citizens, between our the body politic, provoking that kind of contentious ideological conflict and really i think provoking a civil war provoking the the right and the left the republican the democrat system of bipartisan politics into a catastrophe you know and it's really just been a constant onslaught and i think that they were trying to protect their interests here in the united states when the fbi under james comey originally tried to Convert the, the FISA courts and create all these investigations on the incoming Trump administration and the most horrible abuses that have not even been or have not been recognized by the media at all. And you have to recognize that the media in this country is so corrupt and they're participating with this Chinese communist uh, money and with this agenda so completely that you can't even really hear any kind of on any level you cannot hear any kind of uh, criticism of the Communist Party. You cannot hear any of the information that, that's happening that we're just discussing on any of these episodes in the media because they're just only going to continue their propaganda and and without without any end in sight so we cannot expect them to have any kind of semblance of rational truth or thinking um, they're going to really be forced ultimately to post the reality when it hits but until until the reality hits they'll continue to lie and to try to manipulate and try to create opinion and try to create um, the outcome that they want to see come you know come about and that's why you'll see the censorship on you know, and a lot of these leftists totally love it. They want to see this kind of censorship absolutely devastate the countryside. And if they have COVID lockdowns and then they're forced to stay in their houses, then they just eat it up. They just absolutely love it. And they're not interested in maintaining any of the freedoms. They love the kind of totalitarian state putting its boot down on everybody's necks as long as it means they're putting it down on the necks of the Republicans too. And I think that they're going to give up their own country and despite us all. And so we have all these patriots and these operators within, within the government, within the state that are trying to, you know, keep faith with our founding documents and maintain our our liberties and our independence in the face of this huge growing communist tyranny there in China. And it's, it's they, we, they try to talk about Iran and they try to talk about all these different secondary issues, but really ultimately we have to focus on what's happening with China. And I have another article here that we can read and it goes to talk about the, the naval power and that situation that gentleman was just talking about. And this headline is Vietnam and India send warships to transit South China Sea. Earlier this month, three countries sent military units to transit the sensitive Taiwan Strait. Vietnam and India become the latest countries on Saturday to dispatch their warships into the South China Sea amid increased regional tensions. The December 26th transit was a passage exercise aimed at strengthening cooperation between the two countries. The Indian Navy announced the joint mission revolved around humanitarian aid from India. After flooding in Vietnam, the Indian Navy wrote on Twitter, India sent the INS Kiltan to deliver aid on the return trip was joined for an exercise by the ships from Vietnam. The exercise came in the wake of international freedom of navigation transits amid increasing assertive actions in the area from China. Earlier this month, three countries sent military units to transit the sensitive Taiwan Strait. The U.S. Navy's guided missile destroyer USS Mustin sailed through the channel on a routine mission that drew quick rebuke from Beijing, which claims to have shadowed the American warship. 
China then sent a naval strike group featuring its new aircraft carrier, the Shandong, prompting Taiwan to send six warships and eight military aircraft to monitor the Chinese ships. The Saturday exercise was meant to reinforce jointness. The Indian Navy wrote on Twitter, jointness. I guess they did that. So that's pretty much wraps that article up. But it just goes to show you that amid all this incredible display of of corruption and fraud throughout the Washington government apparatus that we witnessed all year long as it just had these weird uh, convulsions in in the effort to try to, to deter Trump or slow him down or just to, to, to try to impeach him. On every level, they try to um, protect the apparatus that's grown up that they call the deep state, you know? And ultimately, you have to remember, at the FBI, they had 40-plus members of their top seventh floor leadership that had to, like, jump ship. They should have been arrested. I mean, they got to all have their golden parachutes and disappear into the background. And now we have truck bombs that are being blown up uh, in... in in Nashville there. I mean, so we have to really have to really keep our eye on the ball here, which is that there's going to be a lot of different people. I and mean, then we can go back to Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook who spent, you know, a really enormous percentage of his personal wealth to try to influence this election. And he really should be under indictment and he should really ultimately have to, to answer for, I mean, if, if, if people have to, who have uh, finance, who vote, you know, who finance improperly during elections have to get arrested and go to jail, then Mark Zuckerberg, he needs to be investigated and possibly prosecuted. And uh, that's something that will probably be um, censored out there on social media, but it's something that needs to be said. So the, the, the whole cabal of them are just completely corrupt. I hope that they're able to pass the, the measures for the, the, sort of the protections of the social media giants will be pulled and they can no longer just operate as propaganda agents of the, uh, of the deep state Chinese Communist Party apparatus there as that they've been doing. So these are just the reality of the facts. I mean, putting all these pieces together, I mean, that's something that we, we do here for you at this show. And we're just trying to stay on top of the uh, of what, on the different changes and the developments as they're coming through. So let's listen to, we have one more interesting perspective that we have to take a look at. And this, of course, will be Mike Pompeo. Actually, we have another interview before that. Points you to the Institute of World Politics. They have a fascinating show that really that just came out, and it's called Taiwan: China's Most Important Target on the Way to Global Hegemony. So we really need to take a little listen to this too, and in order to get a full picture of the and this information is available to us as Americans, as intelligent uh, intelligent people. We're not we're very different than the populace in China, which is ninety percent probably uninformed slave class bondage workers, and in, in America. We have only 300 million, 330 million Americans, and to to a greater extent per capita, we're far richer at per individual than they are in China, and we are far more well informed, and we're far more well educated, and far more intelligent, and more skilled. And if that wasn't true, if this wasn't the greatest nation on God's green earth. They wouldn't have to come over here and try to steal all of our technology and duplicate all of our our developments. And it's something we urgently need to protect. So we need to take a listen to this. Um, it's a lecture series here. Looks like uh, Mr. Richard D. Fisher. Let's go ahead and get listen to this and try to complete the puzzle picture here. Building for regional and global reach. He has studied at Georgetown University and received a BA in 1981 from Eisenhower College. Mr. Fisher, welcome, and thank you for joining us this evening. All right. Well, Ms. McGann, thank you so much for that uh, very generous introduction. 
And uh, I would like to begin by uh, thanking uh, my friend John Lentrowski and uh, the Institute for World Politics uh, for this invitation to speak about uh, Taiwan, uh, the United States, China, and our future. Uh, the Institute for World Politics is one of my favorite organizations in Washington, D.C. Uh, it is a readout for truth and for freedom. And uh, in this in this season of giving, if uh, you have if you can spare to support the institute, uh, you would be not just uh, doing yourself and your in your, but you would be doing your country a great service as well. But okay, uh, on to the show. Uh, I've I've been asked uh, to speak about uh, the challenge to the United States of preserving the democracy on Taiwan. And I thought I would frame uh, my, my uh, address in terms of uh, why preserving Taiwan remains critically important for the United States, why deterring a Chinese attack uh, is, is, is one of the highest tests uh, of American global leadership that uh, the United States must not fail. Taiwan, I hold, is the first step toward China's goal of trying to establish global hegemony. Now, uh, we could go to the, the next uh, slide, Ms. McGann. I simply wanted to include, for, for future reference, uh, uh, just a little bit about uh, my organization the uh, International Assessment and Strategy Center. We've been around since 2004, and uh, we specialize in uh, identifying and describing security challenges to the United States. Uh, and uh, we, we uh, do this for uh, many corners uh, of the government and uh, also uh, widely in the private sector. Uh, next slide, please. I simply wanted here to list uh, some of the major points that I that I hope to cover uh, in my uh, allotted time. Um, it is simply uh, 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 we, we are we are in a period now where China is changing its strategy towards Taiwan. Uh, since uh, Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, uh, China had. A kind of uh, had a had a sort of common policy towards Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, and and that is now changing. We'll also look at how geography uh, is is dictating China's desire for uh, control of Taiwan uh, as as a means of starting its drive for hegemony. At the same time, we'll, we'll look into how China, uh, once it captures Taiwan, uh, will press developing advantages already underway to have the capability for global power projection uh, and uh, eventual global hegemony. And this includes not, not only the building of uh, new proto-alliances around the world, but also seeking hegemony in outer space. Next slide, please. Okay, as I mentioned, peaceful unification 
as a policy for China is now fading. Now understand, when Deng Xiaoping formulated this strategy, and for which there was very little change, uh, peaceful unification, uh, one country, two systems, was not really as it sounded. This was still a strategy for political and economic warfare to undermine support for democracy in Hong Kong and to arrest and reverse the development of democracy in Taiwan. Well, in both locations, one country, two systems, and thus peaceful unification failed. Uh, when Beijing reneged on its 1985 agreement with Britain to allow for a 50-year transition to Chinese government control in Hong Kong, uh, basically over the course of 2019 and then through early 2020, uh, there, there, there was not only a, a massive backfire reaction in, in Hong Kong, but also in Taiwan. And any public support for China's uh, strategy, uh, desire, uh, or united front, really, uh, a strategy of one country, two systems, simply evaporated. In fact, with the 2016 election of the second Democratic Progressive Party government in Taiwan, uh, bets were off for the prospect of Taiwanese wanting to surrender their freedom. Clearly, they've grown used to their freedom. They want to keep it. And the overwhelming majority of Taiwanese from this point on will increasingly reject any uh, offer or, or diktat of unification on China's terms. And now that peaceful unification has faded away, we're seeing increasing statements by Chinese officials, and especially in China's state media, that uh, China must now embark on a different path. Uh, that peaceful reunification, if it's going to happen, requires force. And by this, China means unification by intimidation. Next slide, please. Why does China want Taiwan? It has always tried to cast the question of Taiwan as unsettled history from the Civil War period of the 1940s. Uh, this has never been the case. Uh, if if uh, the Communist Party of China had wanted to establish a uh, uh, mutually advantageous, peaceful relationship with the government on Taiwan, it could have done so in uh, uh, 1950, but it, it, it decided not to. Uh, it wants to control Taiwan first and foremost to prove to its own citizens that Taiwan's evolution toward democracy is not an option for them. It needs to destroy the democracy on Taiwan in order to demonstrate 
to Japan, South Korea, and Australia that the United States cannot guarantee their security, and thus that those countries must end their military alliances with Washington. And of course, Taiwan provides simply uh, a, 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 an ideal base for the People's Liberation Army to uh, begin to project power around the world. If you look at the, the map that I have, the, the, the relief map that I have on the, in the lower right, uh, you see that Taiwan is surrounded by some of the deepest waters in the Pacific Ocean. And these would be ideal for basing Chinese strategic nuclear ballistic missile submarines. Next slide. And we also have to consider that Taiwan is but the first step in China's, or the Communist Party, Chinese Communist Party's quest for hegemony. In about 2013, there was a very popular Chinese uh, article that was bit thrown all over uh, the Chinese internet. Chinese censors did not uh, take this article out. They, they, they did not uh, remove this article. I consider that decision as tacit approval for the article. Uh, it was a very nationalist article, but essentially it outlined the six wars that China will have to engage over the next 50 years. The first one is the war over Taiwan, and very conveniently provided dates. Uh, we're, we're in the hot spot right now, sometime between 2020 and 2025. And it ends in about 2060 with the war to take back lost lands from Russia, which uh, would account for really most of Siberia. And this kind of uh, triumphant uh, anticipation, Taiwan will lead to greater control in the world, is a theme that you often see on Chinese popular uh, internet uh, military issue, internet web pages. Uh, and uh, I, I have a quote from the popular Mayat military uh, webpage from just this past October. Next, next slide, please. In the last two years, we've already started to see China begin to implement its move from strategies of peaceful unification, which again stressed political and economic warfare, so they weren't particularly peaceful, to actual use of military force to intimidate Taiwan. Uh, just this past October 7, uh, the Taiwan uh, Minister of National Defense disclosed that uh, China had conducted over 1,700 aerial and over 1,000 military naval vessel sorties into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Responding to these incursions just for this, just this year, have cost Taiwan over a billion dollars. Uh, China is using all of this activity to practice new strategy, joint operation strategies. Uh, it is also practicing uh, amphibious invasion, uh, airborne activities, and it is combining these with naval, air, and even missile strike activities. This kind of combined arms exercise activity is from this point on going to increase. And I look to, toward uh, 2021 
as 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 providing evidence of this. Perhaps multiple aircraft carrier exercises on the east side of Taiwan. Uh, next slide, please. Now, the PLA has been preparing for a war against Taiwan since the 1950s. One of the most uh, successful American policy endeavors over that same period has been to deter China from attacking Taiwan. But starting in the 1990s and uh, really accelerating in the last 15 years, uh, China has really uh, gone overboard in preparing for uh, an invasion of Taiwan. Uh, this was clear to my friends in Taipei 15 years ago. And uh, uh, it's it's been a staple of conversation uh, in, with my friends there for at least that long. Now, China has, compared to the United States, limited formal airlift to take troops to Taiwan. It wants to build about uh, 400 of its new heavy Y-20 uh, uh, military transport aircraft. It has a helicopter force that's greater than a thousand and uh, is aiming to build a helicopter force of 3,000. In all, uh, PLA air, formal air assets would probably lift uh, uh, just uh, a, a brigade to uh, Taiwan. But next slide, please. But when you consider informal airlift, here you have a game-changing capability. The PLA organizes into a militia force the 3,000 Boeing and Airbus airliners uh, flown by Chinese uh, airlines. Chinese airlines carry, for the uh, pandemic at least, carried about uh, 1.6 million passengers a day. Taiwan's six largest commercial airports could probably process about 175,000 passengers a day. So if those airports were captured, that would be about 5.3 million a month. The, the, one of the key numbers here is 8.6 million, because that's, that's the number of households uh, family households that you have in Taiwan. China has already demonstrated that it is uh, putting officials into uh, weaker households, about a million, to uh, uh, occupy uh, the weaker regions. So uh, you, would, you would think China might want to transport over 8 million trusted Chinese to Taiwan to uh, impose the same level of control. Next slide, please. Sea lift has also, formal sea lift has also been a very important area of investment for the People's Liberation Army. Today, uh, with the ships that have been built, uh, they may be able to transport four divisions. Next slide, please. But when you consider informal sea lift, uh, the large number of large roll-on, uh, roll-off barges, roll-on, roll-off ferries, car carriers. The 
PLA could lift not just 120,000 troops, but also all their equipment, far more important. And just this year, we've learned that to execute this strategy, the PLA does not have to capture uh, the very few large and efficient ports of Taiwan. The PLA has now developed its own kind of mulberry temporary dock that the uh, Allies used to invade uh, Normandy in 1944. Uh, PLA now has the ability to build its own mulberry docks and use its informal sea lift to uh, offload troops and equipment uh, where they can. Next slide, please. And over the last decade, the PLA has invested heavily in new medium weight units. These are much easier to carry, transport, roll on, and then roll off the informal sea lift. Uh, tanks, armored personnel carriers, support vehicles, and such. Uh, next slide, please. And the PLA will soon have a joint force of anti-ship ballistic missiles. This past uh, August 25, uh, the PLA actually tested for the first time that we were able to observe uh, two types of anti-ship ballistic missiles and hit, they hit a moving target ship near the Paracel Islands in the South China Sea. Land-based anti-ship ballistic missiles are now joined by an air-launched version carried by PLA Air Force uh, H-6N bombers. And we know from informal Chinese sources and from uh, interviews at uh, arm shows that uh, they are developing new ship-launched anti-ship ballistic missiles. Next slide, please. Taiwan's recently developed strategy for countering an invasion has been called the overall defense concept. Essentially, Taiwan is acquiring uh, the, the, for, the weapons and the forces necessary to defeat a Chinese invasion in the littoral region, in the region up to 50 kilometers off the coast of Taiwan. The United States is very pleased that Taiwan has adopted this strategy, and arms sales in 2020 have uh, reinforced Taiwan's ability to carry out the strategy, particularly 400 uh, new uh, ground-launched anti-ship missiles. But China has been anticipating this strategy as well, and has is going to attack Taiwan's overall defense concept with the advanced development of new robot uh, weapons, uh, unmanned aerial combat aircraft, unmanned ships, uh, rotor-powered UAVs that are armed with uh, guns or small missiles, unmanned submarines to help clear out uh, the beaches, and also unmanned uh, small ships that can fire charges to defeat any uh, uh, mines that Taiwan would plant on its beaches. Next slide, please. So having conquered Taiwan, there's ample evidence that China will use that as a stepping stone to build uh, a, a greater ability 
for global power projection. In 2019, China, China's defense minister in, in uh, July of that year finally admitted that uh, China's uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, even trillions of dollars, uh, Belt and Road Initiative had a military component. That as China goes around the world buying roads, building bridges, investing in a country's physical or even an electronic infrastructure, that it is also going to be offering its customers, so to speak, uh, an increasingly sophisticated military relationship, a relationship that China hopes will lead to increasing access, especially with Belt and Road partners that, are that have ports on oceans. Just leave that article right there, and you can see that they're going to go into the strategic military advantage of the Belt and Road Initiative for China, and it's really an ominous look at the subject matter here, and we're really taking a closer look at what's not being said in between the lines of all this this news media print that's anti-Trump and this hostility on all levels. You know, it's really a corruption on behalf of a selling out, of a betrayal of our national sovereignty towards the political aspirations of the CCP so that we really can't trust anything the media says. It's really just becoming part and parcel of the communist news propaganda that kind of spews out of Beijing so that no one's really allowed to question the the, the, what's really operating behind the scenes here. And so we're all left to be conspiracy theorists because we're not going to you know, drink the Kool-Aid of the propaganda machines here that are operating on behalf of Beijing. So we can see that the CCP is in control of the canal. That's the major ship gateway that's between North and South America. There at the very, very tip of Mexico, if you go all the way down to the very thin little strip there where they have the, the canal. And China has gotten to the point where they control that and they actually widened it and they widened it to a great extent. And I remember hearing conspiracy theorists on their crazy tinfoil hat podcast talking long ago about how China was widening the Suez Canal so that you could have larger ships, military aircraft carriers and battleships be put through the Suez Canal at a quick rate. And the CCP now controls the ports out there in California. And they're really softening up the, the West Coast out there. And there's really no telling how many different ports all across Africa and up and down South America that they're really in control of in order to get at the, the mineral rights, the diamond mines that are in the mountains and in the, the, the territories behind those locations. So they're really becoming a very formidable power in the world that needs to be addressed. And we can no longer really look down. And you have to understand that we really can't have a Joe Biden presidency. He's so corrupt. He's so completely, and the, the politics in Washington, D.C. has so, been so corrupted that by the Chinese that we can't have a bought-out puppet of this, the Chinese Communist Party go into the White House. And that's exactly what he is. And, you know, they're, they're minions on the street. They're pro-Marxist minions. are really just trying to stamp down the, the gates of the White House there, which is really what they're trying to trying to get at. They're, I think they're really trying to just push these, these psycho... Uh, neo-Marxist mobs of Antifa and so on into trying to just create a huge epidemic. And I can see them just trying to, to get into the White House and, you know, just do their do what they do. And so we need to protect our institutions against this pro-Beijing, pro-Sharia law, pro-communist, 
pro-transgender agenda. And ultimately, that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing that on a that the college campuses are really being bought and paid for by some of these Confucius institutes that we'll talk more about later. I mean, it, it comes up in, in the discussion that we have with Mike Pompeo. And let's take a look at this, this really just fascinating article here that really we really can't overlook. And the headline is, Republican lawmakers urge House Speaker Pelosi to remove Representative Swalwell from Intelligence Committee in their letter the GOP legislators cited recent reporting regarding the California congressman and a suspected Chinese intelligence operative. So you can't even have this reported in open mainstream media today. You can't even hear this story. You can't even go on Twitter and put this without having some kind of banner or some kind of like shadow banning or without some kind of, you know, little envelope that comes down over your post and just blocks it. You know, you have to or you have to be um, kicked off or deplatformed because you can't discuss these matters. That's how pervasive and all consuming the pro Beijing neo Marxist, the sycophants of the cyber tyranny are that are working to just bring our whole country to its knees. That's that's what we're dealing with. Seventeen Republican lawmakers in a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Tuesday called for Democratic Rep Eric Swell to be ousted from the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. In their letter the GOP legislators referenced recent reporting by Axios regarding the California congressman and a suspected Chinese intelligence operative. The woman, a Chinese national engaged in fundraising activities for Swallow's campaign in 2014. The outlet reported, citing unnamed sources, the report said that there are at least one intern at least one intern, the woman recommended had got placed in the congressman's office. So, he, so she's actually placed an agent in his office. Rep. Swalwell long ago provided information about this person whom he met more than eight years ago, whom he hasn't seen in nearly five years to the FBI, blah, blah, blah. So, so this whole article is going to become a, 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 a way for us to look inside the different ways that the Communist Party is infiltrating into our government. So, so he's going to have to defend himself and make statements, and then if he gets taken down, then so be it, because it just furthers their plan of corruption and destabilization as they attack our country. So it goes on to say, a statement from Swalwell's office said that was reported by Axios to protect information that might be, might be classified. He will not participate in the story. The outlet reported that Swalwell was given a defensive briefing in 2015 by federal investigators about their concerns pertaining to the Chinese woman. Swalwell immediately cut off all ties to Fang Fang, according to a current U.S. intelligence official. And he has not been accused of any wrongdoing, Axios said. Republicans in their Tuesday letter urged Pelosi, a California Democrat, to take Swell off the committee. We write to you today out of our concern with Congressman Eric Swell's reported close contacts with a Chinese Communist Party spy recently reported by Axios. You know, so it finally comes out in the media, and now everyone's supposed to take it seriously. Like, 10 years later, because of Representative Swallow's position on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, his close interactions with Chinese intelligence services, however unintentional, are unacceptable national security risk, they declared in a letter. The HPSCI handles some of the most sensitive information our government possesses, information critical to our national defense. As such, we urge you to immediately remove Rep. Swallow from his position on the House Intelligence Committee. So there you go. 
It's going to go on and say some more about that. Yeah. To make matters worse, Rep. Swalwell kept this information to himself while repeatedly using his position on the HPSCI to peddle damaging baseless conspiracies about Donald Trump's unproven ties to Russia for years and still refuses to comment fully on the extent of the nature of his relationship with Chinese Communist Party spy exposed in the Axios bombshell report. So... There you go. I mean, we have to recognize that we're at war. We're at war with the communist regime in Beijing, and they have a very powerful network of sabotage and military maneuvers and unmanned submarines, and that they are building a future that is going to be without a United States of America if we don't wake up. And we are not paying attention to really what is the most important situation is an existential threat to our immediate future and to the lives of our children. And we have to recognize that it's time for us to just stop participating in these divisive political outrages and to learn how to recognize that the money that is polluting our, our political system there in Washington, D.C. is destabilizing our own con- our whole country. And that destabilization is going to become something that will ruin this nation in a way that can't be recovered. And we have to recognize that we have outages of gas outages in Colorado that are threatening people. We have bombs going off and knocking out AT&T Wi-Fi centers and knocking out internet services across multiple states. And we have a lot of disinformation going on. And these are disinformation campaigns that are designed to make sure that the, the American people are not unified and that our understanding about what is happening has become totally fractured. That's what's happening in these politics. These politics have become so polarized that the people on either side can't recognize what is at stake on a geopolitical multilateral level. And we're not recognizing what the threat really is. So we need to take some time when this is what we're this, this, this whole episode is dedicated to just trying to make sure that people can get a wider perspective on what's happening in the world and they have an opportunity to be educated as the American populace so that we don't get turned into rice paddy farmers and the future of our children ruined by the machinations of a tyrannical autocratic power structure that's threatening the entire globe right now. And we have these cyberpunks and these Antifa losers that are going and kicking over our statues and saying how America is the enemy. And ultimately these cyber, these new fascists, these neo neo-Marxist radicals are ultimately serving the design of Beijing who doesn't have to send soldiers and infiltrators and invaders over here to knock over the statues. They can just train college campus kids who are paying tens of thousands of dollars a year to go to college. Your kids, they can teach them to to kick over the statues and ruin the government and from the inside. So that's a level of treachery and treason that we have to be able to confront and name. If we can't name it, then we'll definitely lose our country. We want to defend the future of the world for freedom-loving people everywhere and for democracy. We want to defend the lives uh, and the futures of the people who live in China by making sure that we find uh, a responsible and effective way of neutralizing the threat of Beijing and the communist regime there. And we need to help promote the people's liberty there to help them rise up and ultimately choose a new government. And that's a tough thing to do, especially when we're having a hard time here at home, keeping onto our own government and our own way of life here. So we're not actively fighting this war, not campaigning in the way that we should be to make sure that we can bring about 
the kind of outcome that we would like to have. Because it's so crucial in this episode, we're really trying to get to the heart of the truth and just call a spade a spade in this episode. In, in this in this whole podcast, we need to really look at something that I find very interesting here. And it's Mike Pompeo's speech at Georgia Tech. And this is just several weeks ago. And it's really what kind of is going to give us a really good perspective on what's happening inside the Pentagon and inside the uh, the military apparatus of our government because we have a, a Chinese compromise of our federal government within the Democrats is so deep that investigating it and rooting it out because it's the Democrats are so completely corrupted becomes a highly sensitive political thing because we're not picking on these people because of their political affiliation. We're picking on them because they've sold out their responsibilities and their uh, oath to keep the the Constitution and the, our way of life and to maintain that is, is, a, is a sacred oath that they broke and they need to be called out on that account and they need to be held a, a, to account despite their political affiliation and if there was Republicans or independents or any, people of any political persuasion that were participating in this kind of you know espionage or traitorous activity of being bought and sold their uh, their responsibilities and their their their, their secret clearances as it were and the, these intelligence uh, committees that, you know this guy should probably be you know be under indictment if he if he handed you know if, if he worked with this spy and that's what we're dealing with and it isn't just Swalwa we're going to find out later there's probably a lot more um, of this information is going to come out so here we have to listen to this fascinating discussion with Mike Pompeo and um, let's go ahead and dive in and it is my distinct honor to introduce him to you you know that Secretary Pompeo um, is the 70th person to have this job Uh, the first one I guess must have been uh, Thomas Jefferson what a distinguished uh, line of, uh, of, of individuals that, um, that you follow. Um, Secretary Pompeo has had a whole number of, uh, of, of jobs. I don't know if you know how to keep a job, uh, but uh, there is a, a very positive side to that, of course, which is uh, that, that you have accumulated a host of experience that I think very few people can. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has been a, a, a soldier. He has been an attorney. He has been a business leader. He has been an elected official. He has run our, uh, our intelligence, and now he is our chief diplomat. Uh, he's also slightly competitive, uh, I found, uh, reading about him. Everything he does, he wants to do it uh, well. He wants to be best in class. So when he went to West Point, he graduated first in his class. Uh, and then uh, when he went to Harvard for law school, he was editor of the, of the, of the law review, which is one of the biggest honors for a law school uh, a student uh, at, at Harvard. Uh, when he served our, our military, um, I think it, it, it caught to a very interesting time uh, patrolling up and down the, the Iron Curtain in, uh, in, in between, between West Germany and East Germany and right before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, and, uh, and, and as we were trying to figure out earlier, he may be, we don't know this, but he may be the, the, the first person who's been the head of, uh, of the State Department uh, having been director of the CIA. Which what what an interesting uh, perspective that would uh, that would give you. So um, um, with that uh, background uh, is absolutely really uh, it's fascinating background, and, and I'm incredibly honored, incredibly honored on behalf of all of us at uh, Georgia Tech uh, to welcome and please join me for a warm uh, welcome to the Secretary of State of the United States, Secretary Pompeo. Please. 
Thanks for that kind introduction. Welcome. Good morning, everyone. I love having the liberal arts dean back there. It was always a big challenge when I was in school, making sure I got the periods and the paragraphs, everything just right. I like the math, you know, zeros and ones. Uh, uh, President Cabrera, thanks for uh, uh, the very warm introduction that you gave me today. I want to personally thank you and Lynn uh, for hosting our entire team here. When I come, it's not always simple, and especially in these times, it's even uh, trickier with all the, uh, the requirements. I uh, thank you for getting that right. And thank you, too, to all the leaders here at Georgia Tech uh, and students. Those of you watching virtually, I appreciate you joining me for what I hope will be a good conversation today. I have some opening remarks, and then President Cabrera and I will have a chance to have a, uh, a lively conversation. I know we have a couple special guests, some good friends. Uh, former Congressman Phil Gingrich here. Phil, good to see you. Senator Shambles, thank you too. When I uh, was nominated to be the CIA director, Senator Shambles was so gracious. He'd spent so much time in the intelligence community. Uh, you were so gracious to me to help me figure out where, what was up and what was down, and uh, I deeply appreciate that. It's good to see you again. Uh, as, as President Cabrera said, I graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point, studying engineering, although I joke, don't drive across a bridge that I had anything to do with. Uh, it's been an awfully long time. Um, some of my classmates ended up in the Army Corps of Engineers. I happened to command a cavalry unit. Uh, but I can tell you math matters an awful lot when you're boresighting the cannon of an M1A1 tank. And I'll say, too, in the State Department, you, you talked about people leaving this institution going uh, on to careers in diplomacy. Uh, one of the first things that came across my desk as Secretary of State was there was an important dam across a bridge in Iraq, and it was in trouble. And we were trying to figure out, could we figure out how to save it? Could we figure out how to deploy resources in a, a difficult place? And we had the best engineers in the U.S. government, some of whom worked for me at the United States Department of State, trying to figure out the best solution, the best contractor to bring in, how we would do this to protect uh, Baghdad and the downstream uh, places in this historic Euphrates River Valley and the Tigris River Valley uh, from potential flooding should the dam uh, collapse. So all you engineers out there, state.gov, go to the website, uh, take a good look at it. We would welcome your career in the United States Department of State. Now, you know, I'm not lost. I know this is Georgia the state, not Georgia the country. <laughs> uh, but it's important that I come here to talk about the topic that I have in front of us today because this is the place where American national security intersects deeply with the things that happen at important research institutions like this one. Uh, I thought I'd start with a quick story by way of explanation. Uh, Professor Fei-Ling Wong is with us here today. Professor, I didn't see you sitting there. Welcome. Nice to see you. Uh, several years ago, Professor Wong took a trip to China where he was scooped up by security agents inside of China. He was held in a secret location for two weeks. Professor Wong was interrogated and threatened. They wanted information about his research about China and his time teaching at my alma mater, West Point. Uh, he could tell you the stories better than I could, but they thought they could intimidate him or perhaps recruit him. Uh, because he's ethnically Chinese. It's a blessing he's here with us today, and thankfully was released after pressure from the leadership lots of places, including this very university and the Carter Center. Uh, the lesson I think that we can take away from this is clear. It's that the Chinese Communist Party wants what we have, and they will do whatever they must do to take it and get it. They will steal our stuff. They will pressure critics of the Chinese Communist Party to keep quiet. They will do whatever it takes. 
and it's important uh, to come and talk with the American people about this because Americans must know how the Chinese Communist Party is poisoning the well of our higher education institutions for its own ends and how those actions degrade our freedoms and American national security. If we don't educate ourselves, if we're not honest about what's taking place, we'll get schooled by Beijing. Now, it's taken this country and indeed the entire free world a long time to understand the trajectory that China is on today. In fact, we're not quite there yet everywhere in the world. There's no one to hold accountable for this. That's not the important part. Because for a long time, Republicans, Democrats, leaders all across academia, institutions, commercial space, uh, thought that by trading and engaging with China, that the Chinese Communist Party would reform itself, it would loosen up, it would embrace economic and political freedom, and it would present less risk to freedom around the world. But instead, that's not what we got. Instead, the Chinese Communists used the wealth that was created by this to tighten their grip on power, their grip on power over the Chinese people, and to build a high-tech, repressive state like the world has never seen. General Secretary Xi Jinping has made clear his intentions. You only have to listen to what he says. He says he wants total control at home and to make China the number one power abroad. And he's well on his way to working on that project. He's building up the People's Liberation Army. He's manipulating international organizations for Beijing's benefit. And he's engaging, as we have seen in TV only just these last two days, he's engaging in a vast influence campaign all across the world. And that may, for some of you sitting at home today, uh, seem like uh, a long ways away, a very ambitious touch uh, for Xi Jinping to make. But I must say, he has his eye on each and every one of us. Over the past year, I've talked to America's governors in Washington about this, state legislators in Wisconsin, tech leaders in Silicon Valley, many other groups. I've gone out to talk to them about this challenge, and today I want to talk about what's happening in schools across America, especially research institutions and places like where I'm standing today. <laughs> this thing about it. Chinese Communist Party scientists aren't pioneering cancer cures. We are. And it's not North Korean biochemists that are producing safe COVID vaccines. We are. And Iranians aren't ahead in supercomputing. No, in fact, we are. It is the free world and free peoples that produce these superior results. And we should be very proud of that fact. But we have an obligation to protect it, to preserve it, to make sure that that's the case 10 and 50 and 100 years from now. Because on places like this campus, scientists have pioneered quantum computing, artificial intelligence, pediatric technology, even autonomous robots that can function without human control. And I must say that frightens me just a bit. Um, look, the Chinese Communist Party knows it can never match our innovation as state-owned enterprises, it's an authoritarian regime that is a government-centric focus. That's why it says 400,000 students a year to the United States of America to study 400,000 students a year studying in our universities come from one country. It is no accident. Much of the high-end industrial base inside of China is based on stolen technology or technology purchased from other nations. It's not homegrown. 
Beijing doesn't want Chinese researchers to stay here in the United States. Indeed, after they're trained, they want them to come back. They want to induce their return for the singular purpose of serving the socialist motherland. Look, the party's propaganda apparatus cannot tolerate pesky Americans or Chinese nationals exposing its bankrupt system or the fact that the Chinese people can actually flourish when they are in free societies. It doesn't want you to know what I'm about to tell you. Now let's be clear, I, I want to be sure that my language is precise today. When I say China, I'm talking about the Chinese Communist Party. I love and value, as we all do, our Chinese American community and the Chinese people that live here in the United States and those that live in China as well. We want good things for them. And I, I say genuinely, because as of cases like Xin Wang, a researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, who allegedly lied about being a People's Liberation Army officer, all the while collecting information on UCSF labs. The good news is the FBI nabbed him. And Xi Xiong studied electrical engineering at Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. He tried to enlist in the United States Army. He allegedly admitted his ties to Chinese intelligence, which tasked him with recruiting engineers and scientists where he was working. These are just two examples. But what's more, the Chinese Communist Party deploys dollars just as much as it does cloaks and daggers to get its hands on valuable knowledge. There are many American scholars, often doing research funded by American taxpayers, that have been lured into the Chinese Communist Party's talent recruitment programs. The CCP pays them what is for them, a fortune, to do research related to their current fields for or in China and then often uses the fruits of their brainpower to build its military strength. A researcher from my home state of Kansas was caught up in this trap, as was the Harvard Chemistry Department head. Think about that. The Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, recently described the CCP strategy as rob, replicate, and replace. But I want to add another R to the DNI's list. I want to add repress. Yang Zhuping, a student from China, delivered a commencement address at the University of Maryland back in 2017, just a couple years back now. She praised the fresh air of free speech. She was soon demonized and harassed by CCP propaganda, propaganda outlets. I promise you, while I cannot tell you everything, that was no coincidence. One University of Georgia student said of the CCP secret police in 2018, quote, they have harassed me repeatedly and asked me to give them information about the activities of overseas democracy activists and dissidents. And they are particularly interested in the activities of Uyghurs and Tibetans, end of quote. Some of the CCP's biggest victims on campuses are innocent Chinese nationals themselves. And this is a tragedy. We have a responsibility to police this. Another example, at Princeton, just this year, students in a Chinese politics class were forced to use code names on their work, lest the CCP discover their identities and prosecute them for free expression of views on Hong Kong and the CCP under its draconian new national security law. That's right here. This happened right here in the United States of America. American students, American students talk about safe spaces as shelter from ideas they dislike. Chinese students need safe spaces to
to learn of the ideas that they love. What a stark contrast. Students from China at American universities also live in fear that their families back home will be arrested, will be interrogated, tortured or worse because of the things they say in an American classroom. But look, the CCP doesn't just target Chinese nationals. They want to influence American students as well. Professors and administrators too. Look, they know that left-leaning college campuses are rife with anti-Americanism and present easy targets for their anti-American messaging. It's why they planted Confucius Institutes on our campuses. And under President Trump, our State Department has made very clear these Confucius Institutes are literally up to no good. Many have gone away. Many campuses have seen that, and they've chosen to close down these institutes. But right here in Georgia, Westland College still has one in Macon. Look, it's why there are groups on campuses called Chinese Student Scholars Association here, too. They're directed and almost always funded by the Chinese embassy or a local Chinese consulate. Its purpose, to keep tabs on students and to press pro-Beijing causes. Now, you would think at freedom-loving places like Georgia Tech and institutions and scholars all across the world, administrators, school, school faculty would be more up in arms about the Chinese Communist Party's outright theft and flagrant violation of freedoms that I've described. But we see it too seldom. Well, why? Why do schools censor themselves? They often do it out of fear of offending China. Indeed, I must tell you that MIT wasn't interested in having me to their campus to give this exact set of remarks. President Raphael Reif implied that my arguments might insult their ethnic Chinese students and professors. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Those are the very people that this set of remarks is intended to protect, to protect their freedoms. And I must say that yielding to the ob objection of hurt feelings plays right in to the Chinese Communist Party's hands. They watch America closely. It's what the party says constantly in response to legitimate criticism around the world. You can see it. And how would the party know how the Chinese people feel anyway as no one ever gets to vote? Look, we, we can't let the CCP weaponize political correctness against American liberties. We have to protect and preserve them. Fraudulent cries of racism or xenophobia should never drown out a candid exposure of the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. But we see too often on American campuses that there's silence and censorship. It's been driven by the Chinese Communist Party. It usually boils down to something far less idealistic. So many of our colleges are bought by Beijing. Let me tell you about Vera Zhou. She's a permanent resident of the United States of America. She's originally from China and a senior at the University of Washington. In October of 2017, so just on three years ago, she returned to China to visit her father. Local authorities put her in a re-education camp. A re-education camp for five months and under house arrest for 18 months after using a virtual private network connection to connect to her school's website. Something many of you are doing even as I speak. Back here, we saw this. Our State Department team, Vera's mother, Bob Fu, a great friend of the Chinese people, desperately petitioned the University of Washington 
to advocate for her return. But the University of Washington, a woman named Sarah Castro, the head of the Federal Relations Office said, she said that the university wouldn't help because of a multi-million dollar deal with China. Now, thank God, Vera was eventually released and returned to the United States, but no thanks to the University of Washington, and no thanks to the deal that it had made with the Chinese Communist Party. The U.S. Department of Education, over the last years, has found that schools have taken an estimated $1.3 billion from China since 2013. That's just what we know about. Like so many, like Columbia, so many schools that have failed to report the true amounts. What more? What more bad decisions will schools make because they are hooked on Chinese Communist Party cash? What professors will they be able to co-opt or to silence? What theft and espionage will they simply overlook? What business deals will get done as a result of that? Look, there's a lot of work to do, and I have laid out a pattern and practice that every American needs to know about. And we need to begin to respond to this sooner rather than later, and our administration has begun to do that, but there is an awful lot more work to do. We cannot allow this tyrannical regime to steal our stuff, to build their military might and brainwash our people, or buy off our institutions to help them cover up these activities. We cannot, we cannot let the CCP crush the academic freedom that has blessed our country and blessed us with great institutions like the place that I'm standing today. But we need your help. We need help of students, we need help of faculty, we need help of administrations all across America. We need trustees to police their endowments and the deals their universities are striking with the CCP and CCP-backed groups. We need administrators to close Confucius Institutes and investigate what so-called student groups backed by the CCP money are actually up to on their campuses. The government will help, but we need people to assist us. We need researchers to be vigilant against fraud and theft and the academic community to reject the CCP's financial siren songs. And we need students to truly stand for free speech. The free speech for themselves, those who grew up here in America, and especially the free speech of Chinese students who are on our campuses who are here to study and learn and to improve their rights, their lives, and to enjoy the fruits of the freedom that we provide them here in the United States of America. Look, we need you all to speak truth to power and solidarity when administrations exert pressures on censorship, as has so often happened to project deals, protect deals with Beijing. Let's do this. Let's carry forward a banner of freedom to defend our schools, what these institutions were built upon. It will aid our national security. And from the central threat of our time, the Chinese Communist Party. President Cabrera, I'm looking forward to our vigorous conversation. I thank you all for your attention this morning. May God bless the state of Georgia and the United States. Thank you for having me here this morning. Thank you so much, Secretary. Um, and um, appreciate you uh, coming here. And um, let me, let me, you bring so many important and incredibly difficult questions um, uh, for us. So you, you, you know that 
Georgia Tech, uh, we're a proud partner of the United States government. Uh, we are uh, one of the most research-intense universities in the country. Uh, the head of our Georgia Tech Research Institute is in attendance. That organization alone does about $750 million in, in research grants. Uh, a lot of that classified work um, uh, with the different um, agencies in the government. Uh, the overall institute does over a billion dollars of grants every year. We're very proud. Uh, not all of that, of course, is, is funded, but most of the big, the bulk of that is. So we, we, we take issues of protection of our ideas and inter intellectual property very, very, very seriously. So we have to just leave the interview right there. He's going to go into a really interesting 30-minute question and answer period, which I really should encourage you to go ahead and take a listen to. And really, we want to make a point now to point out that academia and politics and our whole uh, body politic in this country, the whole society is really being split down the middle over these issues of how to understand the, uh, the, the nature of, of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think a lot of the propaganda out there, it works hard to keep the, uh, the wide uh, majority of Americans in this state of confusion and to keep the to keep the masquerade up and to camouflage what their true purpose is there with the the, the CCP and we have to recognize that that uh, it's a really it's an effort to break this information out to get these kind of dialogues in front of people so they can recognize the threat of Beijing and the, you know what the ramifications for that will be if Taiwan ultimately falls into their hands and they're able to start to take lands and regions of the globe that they want by force, and by military force. And um, that's something we have to do to defend against. And it's going to be a serious major hurdle, a major challenge to our lives and to maintaining our, our freedoms and our way of life here in America. And as I was stating earlier, it's not the Suez Canal, but it's the Panama Canal that the Chinese Communist Party is really controlling and has expanded and really represents a, a you know a hegemonic, a geopolitical threat to our region if they can be in the uh, the, the Pacific theater and then cross right into the Atlantic theater, uh, the naval waters, and they can use that what is ostensibly a commercial canal for military purposes. It, it represents a significant military threat the uh, Panama Canal in South America. And I want to finish up with just reading a, a quick article here that's coming out. And you can remember just a few weeks ago, especially before the election, there was, you know, it was taboo to suggest that there was anything wrong with Hunter Biden's uh, affairs. And uh, you, censored, you would be censored in Twitter and Google and Facebook and the entire internet virtually would work together to make sure that you were silenced or kicked off or deplatformed if you suggested that Biden uh, was corrupt by Chinese money. And now the articles are starting to flow out and that they're under indictment and they're under investigation at every level. So here's the headline, Hunter Biden and the big guy, the anatomy of a foreign enrichment scandal. New evidence that surfaced in recent weeks provides a more complete picture of Hunter Biden's business endeavors and their correlation to his father's policy responsibility as vice president. So now we're going to find out that these guys shall be in prison and they're trying to march into the White House. 
Nearly a year after President Trump was acquitted in an, a fake impeachment trial for seeking an investigation of Biden family business dealings overseas, explosive new revelations have surfaced showing the extent of Hunter Biden's effort to cash in on his father, Joe Biden's name, and the timing of key business transactions to the former vice president's policy responsibilities and actions. Here are some of the key dates and evidence. June 2009, six months into the Obama-Biden administration, Hunter Biden co-founds an investment fund called Rosemount Seneca Partners with Christopher Hines, the stepson of the then senator and future secretary of state John Kerry and the former Kerry aide named Devin Archer, who I think is the one who's in big trouble. The firm would create a series of side business ventures over the next several years in China, Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. November 2013, Hunter Biden and his business partners form a company called Bohai Harvest RST Partners, or BHR, to invest to do investment business in China. December 4th through the 7th, 2013, Hunter Biden joins his father aboard Air Force Two for a trip to Beijing, where he briefly introduces the vice president to his business partner. Jonathan Lee, Vice President Joe Biden's official trip to Beijing was to quietly secure to quiet security cons- concerns in the region after Chinese aggression in the North China Sea. Less than two weeks after the trip, China officially approves an, an operating license for the BHR investment. So we can go on and on and on here. It just the article continues, and you should take time out of your day to read how corrupt the Biden administration really is. And you need to recognize that you're trying to learn the truth outside the bounds that are being set by the internet, by Twitter, by Facebook, by Amazon, by you know, so that so the, the the world of information is giving you a false sense of what's really happening so that you you will not learn the truth about the Biden the Hunter Biden laptop and the, the fact that he was smoking crack with a 14 year old girl these are all things that you have never heard about because you're living inside of a, a, a Beijing funded echo chamber that controls the internet within the United States and with that final article we'll end this episode and we hope to have you guys back soon